0: The foundation is built on solid rock, Yeshua. Yeshua. the rock of our salvation, on Solace Radio. So let's begin, though, what I want to do, before we go just narrowly focus on Jeremiah, I want to give you the broader picture, and then we'll slowly begin to focus and narrow and narrow into the actual book. So a good place to start is Genesis, as always, in chapter 10, verse 8 through 11. Remember Nimrod, who built the Tower of Babel? Here it says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, Chad, Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Now look at this. This is what I want to point out. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah. Okay. In case you didn't know, Abraham lived around the time of Nimrod. And so Abraham was 4,000 years ago. 2,000 years from us to the Messiah, 2,000 years from Messiah to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Adam. So we're going 4,000 years ago. We're looking at about 2,000 B.C. when Nimrod is building the Tower of Babel. What we're going to do for a moment is fast forward 1,200 years. Now think about 1,200 years ago from now. That's the distance that we're going forward from Abraham forward. We're going to go past Moses, who was about 1500 BC. We're going to go past David, who is around 1000 BC. We're going to go past Solomon's reign, and we're going to come to about 900 BC. Now, what that means is this. Nineveh has been around a long time. Think about that. Nineveh was in 2000 BC. Nineveh existed. And now we're going 1,200 1, years forward. The United States is only been around 200 years. Can you imagine? Here's a city that's already been around 1,200 years. One city, 1,200 years long. Let's look at this next PowerPoint. Okay, I have, there's Kala on the far right. You'll see the arrow there. And then you'll see uh, Asher that it was talking about. And there's Nineveh. All right, so here's these cities that are... At this time, four thousand years old, but here it's twelve hundred years this particular city of Nineveh has already been around. Well, you'll uh notice here Assyria, what I have is a the big the big dog in the area, the Assyrian empire, okay uh they're covering a vast area they're in, uh they've conquered Babylon, they've conquered egypt, the middle east, the Assyrian empire was huge. Well, of course, you realize they've been around for 1,200 years, too. They've been around a long time. So Assyria is the world empire reigning over the Middle East and Egypt for over 200 years. And here's when the Assyrian Empire was at its strongest, about 884 to 612 B.C. Now, think about this. Don't you think its domination affected the nation of Israel? Of course it did. Guess what? the capital city was of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. So here Nineveh has been around now at this time for a minimum of 1,200 years. That's why it is now the capital of the world empire of Assyria. And guess what? That's where Jonah headed. See, most of us, when we read the book of Jonah, having to go to Nineveh, he's going to the capital of the assyrian Empire, I mean that 's like someone you know when um, oh, i don 't know why i can 't think of his name, but think of any crazy maniac uh, in, in some Middle Eastern country and you 're Jewish and they 're the ones that are controlling it, and you have to go to their main capital i mean that 's like telling some uh, some Jewish kid to go to Tehran and tell Iran to repent. I mean, think about it i mean i 'd be going the other way too. <laughs> Look at what it says. This is in Jonah 1 verse 1 and 2. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry against it for their wickedness is come up before me. OK, Nineveh has been around over twelve hundred years It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire of the world's greatest empire. And that's where he's supposed to go. Look at Jonah three three. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days journey. Can you imagine the city itself is so big it takes three days to cross it? Now here's what a lot of people don't understand. Here's the back to PowerPoint. Let's bring in Jonah. Okay. Jonah left from Tel Aviv here in Jerusalem. This great whale picks him up here and vomits him out here on the beach. Look how far he has to walk to get to Nineveh. Most people don't realize it's a three day walk just to get here in the city of Nineveh. How many months or how long did it take for him to get all the way to Nineveh? Most people when they read the story don't realize how far Nineveh was inland. So I just wanted to show you this first off that once Jonah gets Jonah gets thrown up by the well on the beach, you know, he's got to walk a long ways just to get to Nineveh to tell him to repent. Can you imagine how he stunk by the time he got there? I'd have been scared to death too if I saw him coming. But look at this. We're going to kind of put a little bit of a time frame around Jonah. In 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 23 through 25, it says it was in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, he began to reign in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. He did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath to the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gathifer. So right here, this is giving us a time frame of when Jonah reigned, or when he had this prophecy. And guess what? It was right during the main time frame of the Assyrian Empire. So that's when he was going there. Well, let me show you this now. And this is on one of your PowerPoints. I think it's your first PowerPoint on your colored sheet. What I've done here, Ahaz is Amaziah's grandson. So we just read a verse about Amaziah. We're jumping to his grandson, Ahaz. And he reigned, he began his reign about 741 BC. And he ruled for 16 years. Hezekiah for 29, Manasseh 55. Ammon for two, Josiah for 31, Jeho has only three months, that's why you don't even see anything, Jehoiakim uh, uh, for 11 years, Jehoiachin uh, for just three months, and then Zedekiah 11 years. So I, I've kind of went down in an Excel spreadsheet and then kind of moved over for you to give an idea of how long each person uh reigned. All right, but Ahaz was Amaziah's uh, great-grandson. But now what I want to bring out, let's talk about Assyria for a minute, and let's go to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 19. Watch how fast the kings of Assyria change as well. Here we have someone by the name of Paul, who's the king of Assyria. And he came against the land, and Menahem, now Menahem is one of the kings of Israel, he gave Paul a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand the uh Menahem killed the king of Israel that was existing at the time, so he could become king and then he gives money to the Assyrian empire to help confirm him that he can be king. Okay That's what happens. Money talks okay in politics all right, so now we're going to go to second kings chapter sixteen, verse two through nine. And look at this, Here we now this is at the, the first person that brings us to the time of Jeremiah, as we're narrowing in. Ahaz, he's only 20 years old when he began to reign, and you'll notice he only reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he was one of the bad guys, he did not do that which is right. In the sight of the Lord his God, I gave it his father, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So he's the king of Judah but he's walking in the ways of the kings of Israel. Look what this king did. He made his son, his firstborn, to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen. He offered him up to Molech, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. Look what else he did. He sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places, on the hills, under every green tree. And then what happens? Now, this is not Assyria. This is Syria. It says, then Rezin, king of Syria. And look at this. Pekah. The son of Amalia, who's now the king of Israel, they come up to Jerusalem to war. So here you have the king of Israel siding with Syria to attack Judah. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria, drove the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath, dwelt there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers too. now we have a new king of Assyria. We now have Tilgath policer, king of Assyria, instead of Pul. And he's saying, I am uh, your servant. So Ahaz is ready to give up. He's ready to give up to the king of Assyria. And he says, I'm your servant and your son come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel. So here, think about this. This is politics. Here you have the king of Israel and Syria siding up against Judah so Judah goes to the big dog Assyria saying, help, save me from these guys, and and I will give you all kinds of great things, okay? And so what happens? It says, they're rising up against me. So look what Ahaz does, the king of Judah. He took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened to him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, took it, carried the people of it captive to Kerr, and slew their main guy, Rezin. All right, see, what happens today when Israel relies on the United States, not that we shouldn't support them, but they have to realize their trust has to be in God. It can't be in some other nation to pull them out of their mess. So you're going to see how appropriate everything that was going on back then is also applying today. Now, here's the thing. If you go back to this, here's where Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was from the time of Josiah all the way through Zedekiah and even further. But I just wanted to give you an idea of where you would put Jeremiah in all of this. Now, what I've done, I've taken these little tiny narrow strips in my Excel spreadsheet, and I made them real big. So we're going to take it like this. Here's Ahaz, who reigned 16 years. The yellow were the Shemitah years on your sheet. And I want you to notice, so here after Hezekiah reigned 16 years, Hezekiah reigned 29, Manasseh 55, but they're going out this way, further. You know, each a row down, and you're going to see it as we progress here. But I also want you to notice, who's prophesying during the time of Ahaz? You have Hosea, you have Isaiah, you have Micah. Okay, and right in here in 740 B.C. is where you have Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So that's what's on your chart there. So you get an idea of when these kings reigned. So uh, then what do we find? We're going to go to now 725 B.C. So I'm going to go to this next PowerPoint. And what do we see happens in 725 B.C.? Ahaz's reign ends, and Hezekiah comes into the picture. It says in 2 Kings eighteen one that it happened in the third year of Hosea, that's the king of Israel, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Okay, so he begins his reign in 725 B.C., and guess what? There's a new king of Assyria. Now, it is uh Shalmaneser, okay? Look at what it says in 2 Kings seventeen three and 4. This is in 722 BC. It says, against him, that means the king of Israel, came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hosea became his servant, and he gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea because he had sent messengers to the king of Egypt named So. And he brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him up in prison. Now, watch what happens here in 722 B.C. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and Israel carried Israel away into Assyria. You always hear about the, the northern tribes being taken captive into Assyria. Well, this is it. 722 B.C., uh, Salmaneser comes, and he takes Israel captive. You'll see that on your PowerPoint. But now look what happens. There's another new king of Assyria in 2 Kings 18, 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, okay, just a few years later, still during Hezekiah's reign, there's a new king in Assyria. His name is Sennacherib. And he comes up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So think about this. Here you have the, the king of Assyria comes and carries away the northern tribes. He dies, or whatever happens, this new king of Assyria comes in and says, hey, why not get the southern half as well? Let's go down and try to get Judah. And so what do we see? Hezekiah, who is a good king, he beseeches the Lord. In Second Kings chapter 19, verse 32 through 37, it says, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He says to Hezekiah, he's not going to come into this city. He's not even going to shoot an arrow there. He's not going to come before it with a shield or even cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He's not going to come into this city, says the Lord, for I'm going to defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and he smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 people. And when they woes early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So what does Sennacherib do? The king of Assyria, he leaves and went, returned, and he where did he dwell? That's the capital. Of Assyria, so it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of uh, Nisroch, his God, uh, these two bad guys, who were his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and this other guy, his other son reigned in his stead. So now what do we see? What does Isaiah say to Hezekiah? See, this is where you can see you can intertwine these prophets, and you know who's around during what time. And he says, "Here is the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house in which your fathers have laid up in store till this day is going to be carried where? Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and your sons that issue from you which you're going to father, they're going to take them away. And there'll be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, wait a minute. Before I read any further, first off, think about this. There is no king in Babylon. There's not even a Babylonian empire yet. This is still the Assyrian Empire. Here Isaiah is speaking to uh, Hezekiah, and he's talking about a nation that doesn't even exist yet, and an empire that doesn't even exist. This is pretty incredible prophetically. But now what would you think if if you were Hezekiah, and the prophet comes up to you and says, these horrible things are going to happen to your kids and your grandkids? Guess what he said? Look at what he said. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, well, great. It's good that a peace is in my day. (laughs) Look at that. Good is the word of the Lord, which you've spoken. And he said, is it not good that peace and truth are in my day? Who cares what happens in my kids' days? (laughs) pretty incredible. But anyway, what do we see in 2 Kings 20, verse 21? Hezekiah sleeps with his fathers. And now who comes along? Manasseh, his son, right in his place. Have any of you guys ever studied Manasseh? Manasseh was not a good king. You would think, his, you know, Hezekiah was a good king. I mean, he had his problems. But, you know, still, I mean, here he fathers this kid Manasseh. Let's read about Manasseh here. 2 Kings 21, 2-7, He did the evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. Look what he did here. He built again the high places which his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel did. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said in Jerusalem I'll put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of the heavens in the two courts of the temple of the house of the Lord. And then look what he did. He did. He made his son also pass through the fire. He sacrificed his firstborn son. He observed times. He used fortune tellers. He dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He worked much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He set a graven image of the Asherah, which he made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And that wasn't all. Look what else he did. It goes on in verse 16. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin with which he made Judah to sin, and doing the evil in the sight of the Lord. How many of you guys think this was a pretty bad guy? Has anyone here done anywhere near that? Okay? Look at this next verse. Let's jump over to 2 Chronicles 33, 10-16. The Lord speaks to Manasseh, literally, just like he appeared to Solomon here. The Lord is speaking to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not listen. So the Lord brought on them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with chains and carried him to Babylon. See, Babylon is part of the Assyrian empire. So he takes the king of Israel, hauls him off to Babylon. Well, what happens? What happens? When he was in his affliction, he sought the Lord his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. He was entreated of him and heard his prayer and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. That's a big wow. And Manasseh knew that Jehovah is God. And after this, what did he do? He built a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate and went around Ophel. He raised it to a very great height. And look what he did. He put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the strange gods, the idol out of the house of the Lord, all the altars that he had built in the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed on the peace offerings and thank offerings, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Isn't, you know, I mean, now here's the crazy thing. If we remember Israel in Ezekiel, it's telling God you're not fair. Because you just got done saying if a person is righteous his whole life and then he turns wicked, none of his righteousness is remembered. And if someone is evil their whole life and then they turn and they become righteous, this righteous, none of their wickedness is remembered. And they said, that's not fair, God. And that when I think of Manasseh and all the wickednesses he did, and then at the end he turned righteous. But then I think of Solomon. And it was at the end when he turned and worshipped all the gods. I mean, it's just just something to think about. But the other thing to think about is look how evil and wicked Manasseh was his whole life. But he turned, he repented. It's just as incredible. We have a God that if we repent, all we have to do is, and I don't mean repent. I have a whole teaching just on what true repentance is. But if we truly repent and we take the action, God will forgive us. So there's hope. Okay, but then what happens? Let's go to our next PowerPoint. After Manasseh, Manasseh's reign, but I want you to notice something on this PowerPoint. I'm throwing some things in here. Right in here, Jeremiah is born. Two years later, Josiah is born. So I want you to realize Jeremiah and Josiah are very close in age. And if you'll notice, after Manasseh, his son Ammon He's 22 years old when he begins to reign, and he only reigns two years. But think about this. If you look at when Josiah was born, do you realize Ammon, who was his father, gave birth to him at 16? So Ammon got married at 16 when he gave birth to Josiah. Because in Second Chronicles 33, Josiah is only eight years old, okay, when he begins to reign. But guess what happened? This is what's amazing. Can you imagine Josiah, a little eight-year-old? These people conspire against his daddy and kill him in his own house. We don't know for sure if Josiah saw the murder happen, but here Josiah is eight years old when they come in and kill his dad in his house. We find in 2 Kings twenty-one nineteen. it says Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. And in verse 20, it says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. And then in 2 Kings 21, verse 23 and 24, it says, And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. And the people of the land slew all of those that had conspired against the king of Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. Now here's something that's really crazy Josiah is born about 647 B.C., you'll notice. But do you know it was prophesied that he was going to be born and even mentions his name, Josiah, 250 years earlier. Look at this. This is 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2. This is right after Solomon died, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You have the divided kingdom. This is 250 years longer than the United States has been around that God said this. It says, Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam, he's the one who put the golden one, the altar in Bethel and in Dan, Jeroboam. It says, Jeroboam is standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar and the word of the Lord, this prophet, this man of God did. And he says, Oh, altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon you shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon you, and men's bones shall be burnt around you. Do You know, you're going to see as we're studying this exactly that that was fulfilled. Here it was Josiah who fulfilled this prophecy. Now, how can anyone not believe in a God who can talk about people by name that are going to be, that are going to do these things 250 years before it even happens? Let's go to the next PowerPoint. Okay, if you look at 629 BC, I want you to notice this is where the prophet Zephaniah and the prophet Nahum are also prophesying, okay? And they're prophesying the downfall of Nineveh as well as the entire Assyrian Empire during the reign of Josiah. Okay, so we're getting, we're now in the time frame of Jeremiah because Jeremiah and Josiah were born about the same time. And here you have the Assyrian Empire is waning, Okay, it's starting to fade out. And here Zephaniah and Nahum are prophesying this. We see it in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the uh, Elkoshite. God is jealous. The Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. And look at Zephaniah 2.13. He will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. So here the, you know, a long time earlier, this prophet came, Jonah, telling Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. Nineveh repents. They're not destroyed. Time goes by. Nineveh goes back to their old ways. So now here comes Nahum and Zephaniah prophesying the fall of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire, and it's going to happen during uh, Josiah's time, right around that time frame. So if we look... Uh, let's look at this PowerPoint. Let's go back up there. and So, I don't know, it's pretty hard to read, but that's why I gave it to you on your sheet. And those people that are live streaming can also look at this sheet. I want to kind of detail this a little bit. I want you to notice that uh in 632 BC, this is when Josiah is now 16 years old. He started when he was 8, so it's the 8th year of his reign. And I have 2 Chronicles 34.3 there on your notes, so you can follow along. You're going to find that it was in the eighth year of his reign that Josiah began to seek God. He's 16 years old. But guess what? He already has two kids. Look at this. Yeho Ahaz is born, and then he seeks God, and the next year Yeho Yachin is born. So here, he's only 16 years old, and he's already a dad. How many of you know sometimes when you have kids, you begin to seek God? <laughs> I mean, this is just the way it is. And so here he is, he's 16, he's got two kids, he's seeking God. and uh But look at 628 B.C. This is when Daniel, the prophet Daniel, is born. And uh, in 2 Chronicles 34.3, it talks about in the 12th year of his reign, when Josiah is now 20 years old, this is when the reforms begin to happen. Okay, now at 20, he feels a little more stronger, a little more mature. I can start doing reforms. And then what do we find in the 13th year... This is when Jeremiah begins to prophesy. And if you'll notice here, and one of the things I want to explain to you, and you're going to see it more as we go, the book of Jeremiah, the chapters, forget about reading them in order. You're going to see here, you want to begin with Jeremiah 1, chapter 2, chapter 15, 16, and 17, and chapter 12. This Chronologically, this is the order that you want to look these in. Now, if you'll notice I have Jeremiah 1 in black. The other ones are in blue, the font. The reason for that is this as you go along here. Jeremiah 1 is definite dating. The, the What's in blue is just, you're gonna as you read it, you're gonna say, yeah, this has to be the same time frame. Okay, there's hints that this is exactly when it is. Now I'm not saying you have to read it 1, 2, 12, 15, 17, 16, 17. You can read it. 1, 2, 15, 16, 17, and then 12. They're all happening at the same time, you're going to see. So they're really in groups, okay? Uh, and then you're going to notice, uh if you go down to 622 B.C., this is the 18th year of Josiah's reign. He's 26 years old now. This is the 18th year of his reign, and they find the Torah scroll, okay? And uh this is when you would read Jeremiah 11, And then I have in Chronicles and Kings also this event that's happening uh, in the book of Jeremiah, and this is when they hold the greatest Passover that have ever been held, it says. Okay? So what I'm putting in here on this PowerPoint chart that's in your notes is so you can kind of read other things that are around the same time frame. So here's what's happening. The Assyrians are fading. The Babylonians are ascending. And you're going to see here in 627 B.C., if you'll notice up at the top, Nabal-Palasser is the king of Babylon at this time. And then in 626 B.C., they gained independence from Assyria. So now Babylon has rebelled against the kingdom of Assyria, and Babylon is beginning uh, to regain control over Mesopotamia. Well, what's happening to Judah? Okay, they're falling victim to the power struggles between the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. They're just this bouncing ball. Everyone's trying to control them, and they're just bouncing back and forth between all these stronger powers. Okay, now, going back to 622 B.C., when they find the Torah scroll, look at this, 2 Kings 22.8. It says, And Hilkiah, who is the high priest... He said unto Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. It's more specifically, it was Deuteronomy that he found. It was the book of Deuteronomy and it was the last few chapters. And you're going to find they're reading it and they're saying, woe is us because this is, all these horrible things are coming. It was prophesied about it, you know, 700 years earlier and we need to repent, Okay. Now, I want to mention something about Hilkiah, the high priest. If you go to Joshua chapter 21 and verse 13, if you remember, the Levites could could not own, you know, property per se, but they were giving different cities and different areas for the refuge of the slayer and for them to live. And I want you to notice this. Now, remember, not all the Levites are priests. Only the sons of Aaron are priests. And it says, they gave to the children of Aaron the priest, Hebron, with her suburbs, to be a city of refuge for the slayer. And then it starts mentioning all these other cities. And if you go to chapter or chapter 21, verse 17 and 18, it says, And out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with her suburbs, Geba with her suburbs, and Anathoth with her suburbs. And the, Did you know the temple was in the tribe of Benjamin? Okay, it, it was part of the temple, it was in the tribe of Benjamin. Anathoth is where Jeremiah lived, is very close to Jerusalem. Now, if, if you're a high priest, you're gonna to want to live where the Levites live close to the temple, right? Hilkiah the high priest lived in Anathoth, all right? He's the one who found the book of the law, right? Look at Jeremiah 1 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Do you realize Hilkiah the high priest was Jeremiah's daddy that found the Torah scroll? Now, some people say, well, there were a lot of Hilkiahs. Yes, but not every Hilkiah was a priest, number one. And as I look through different Jewish commentaries, Christian commentaries, some of the Christian commentaries will say Hilkiah the high priest wasn't Jeremiah's daddy. And all the Jewish commentaries say Hilkiah the high priest was Jeremiah's daddy. Okay, so you have some different commentaries disagreeing whether he was or whether he not But when you look at the text, I I believe he was. And if you don't want to believe he wasn't, that's fine too. But it really looks to me like more than likely he was. Now, I want to show you this next PowerPoint. If you see where Nineveh is, right? Well, what happens? Babylon is coming to power and they're pushing the Assyrians. They end up fleeing Nineveh as their capital and Haran becomes their capital. And then when uh, Nebuchadnezzar knocks them out of there, they end up going to Carchemish as their capital. The capital keeps moving as they're running from Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, when the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was overrun by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. This is going to be on your next PowerPoint. If you look at your PowerPoint ahead, you can be following with me. So the Assyrians moved their capital to Haran, which is now in Turkey. And when the Babylonians captured Haran in 610 B.C., the Assyrian capital was moved to Carchemish. In 609 BC, get a load of this. What happens? The Egyptian army of Pharaoh Nico II was delayed at Megiddo in Israel by the forces of King Josiah of Judah. Okay? You have the Egyptians are siding with the Assyrians against the Babylonians. As a matter of fact, I'll read to you here in a minute, but the Assyrians are the ones that put Pharaoh Necho in power in Egypt. The Assyrians controlled Egypt. They put the head of Egypt, just like the head, who's boss here, they put who's boss there. So Pharaoh Nico is coming up to help the Assyrians in Carchemish to fight the Babylonians, but Josiah is stopping him. Josiah intervenes and stops the king of Egypt from trying to help Assyria I guess he wants the Babylonians to take over the Assyrian Empire. So let's watch what happens. As a matter of fact, let me just show you Carchemish. Uh, this is, it's that little hill. We'll bring it closer here. But this is, this is a world famous historical battle. Go on the internet, type in the Battle of Carchemish. This is, this is one of the most significant battles of history. But in 2 Chronicles 35, 20 through 25, it says, after all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. Josiah went out against him, but he sent messengers. Now listen to this. Pharaoh sends messengers to the king of Judah saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I do not come against you today, but against the house which I have war. For God, now look at this. How many of you, you know, don't think God can't speak to strangers? It says, God commanded me to hurry. You must cease from opposing God who is with me so that he does not destroy you. But Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguise himself so he might fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo and the archer shot at King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, I'm grievously wounded. His servants took him out of the chariot, put him in a second chariot that he had. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died. He was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And look at this, Jeremiah mourned for Josiah. Look at 2 Kings 23, 28-30. This is the same event here from Kings rather than Chronicles. And there's a word here that is mistranslated, kind of. It says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria. Now, when you read that, you think Egypt was fighting against Syria, right? But if I'm leaning against a wall, I'm not against a wall, okay? Or if Art and I can be against each other fighting someone. So the word against really isn't the best translation. He came to go be next or against Assyria in fighting Babylon uh, to the river Euphrates. And then it says, King Josiah went up against him, and he slew him at Megiddo when he saw him, and his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, buried him in his own sepulcher. And look what happens here. The people of the land took Yehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, and made a king in his father's stead. Well, guess what? Pharaoh Necho is not real happy that Josiah did that. Sorry Josiah died. Guess what, Israel? You put his son in charge. Pharaoh Necho on his way back says, ain't happening. And he takes Jehoahaz and says, you're not going to be king. And he puts someone else in his king, in his anger. And you're going to see that here. Um, this brings us to 608 BC when his son Jehoahaz, which is also known as Shalom, only rules three months. Okay, and so let's go to this next PowerPoint here. So you notice it's 612 B.C., Nineveh falls to Babylon. 610 B.C., Haran falls to Babylon. 608 B.C., this is a Shemitah year. That's why it's in yellow. It's a Shemitah year. Jeremiah is now 41 years old. Okay. Ezekiel is 14 years old. Uh, and I have some different scripture verses. And if you'll notice, this is when you'll read chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. I have underneath, uh, Josiah was 39 years old when he died, fighting Egyptians who were helping Assyria. And Pharaoh, uh, in his anger, deposes Yehoahaz. Uh, he was 23 years old. You'll see when he reigned, he only reigned for three months. And he puts Jehoiakim, who's 25 years old, instead uh, to reign. But get a load of this too. When you look at Josiah, you know, like I said, 39 years old and he has a 25 year old kid. Okay, these guys were young when they were having babies. But then you'll notice after five and six, what do we have? Chapter 13, 14, 23, 26, and 27, 1 through 11. Up at the top, you'll see this is when you're going to be reading the book of Joel, the book of Habakkuk. Daniel is now 22 years old. I have at the bottom in 606 B.C., this is when Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2 come in line. This is when Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. And then in 605 B.C., this is now not only Assyria has fallen now, you're also going to see uh, Egypt's downfall. And what do we see in Jeremiah 46-49? This is when he's uh, preaching against Egypt, Moab, you know, all these other countries he's preaching against. Uh, you're going to see Jeremiah 45, uh, chapter 36, chapter 25, and then the famous battle of Carchemish that nails the Assyria totally into the coffin. This is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar is the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Okay? You're going to see as this timeline unfolds, this helps you put things in a better perspective of who's on the scene, when, and where is the very next year in 604 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar dreams his uh, image of gold. This is Daniel chapter 2, you know, also verse 1. And you have Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah 30, 35. This is the 24th year of Jeremiah prophesying. So this is why I had to have this Excel spreadsheet just to kind of show you these timelines and all the different things that are happening at the same time. So as you're reading these chapters, you're going to see how it, totally makes sense that they're out of order, if that makes sense. Okay, so let's read this now. Let's look at Second Kings 23, 31 through 35. It says when uh, we have Yehoahaz, is 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And so Pharaoh Necho, he's upset because Josiah had blocked him from getting to carchemish in time. He puts him in bands at Riblah. Now let me show you where Riblah is. Uh, just northeast of Damascus a little bit. Right in there. See, up there's carchemish He comes down from carchemish goes to Jerusalem, grabs him, takes him up to Riblah, which is right there. And it's, then look what uh, Pharaoh does. It says that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he put Israel to a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So Pharaoh Nico made Eliakim, the son of Josiah king, in the room of Josiah his father, <clears throat> and turned his name to Yehoiakim. And he took Jehoiakim away, came to Egypt, and he died there. So that guy died there. And then what does Jehoiakim do? He gives the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, uh, and he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land and everyone, according to his taxation, to give it unto Pharaoh Nico. And we see this same thing happening in Second Chronicles 36, 1 through 5, how they took him, the son of Josiah, made him king, and how... Um, Pharaoh Nico takes him and puts him down at Jerusalem. And it says here, it says, they condemned the land and the hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And if you go to the bottom of that paragraph, it says Jehoiakim now is 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigns 11 years in Jerusalem. And guess what? He did that, which is evil. Evil. Okay. And so now we have Eliakim or Yehoyakim, uh ruling for 11 years. If we go to Jeremiah, chapter 46, 1 and 2, let's look at this. It says, here are the word of the Lord. If you'll notice see on your notes, if you remember, I said 46 is when it begins to prophesy against Egypt. And it says, he came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, and against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck when? In the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So that's why you can look at your chart, look at the fourth year of Jehoiakim. you can know this is the Battle of Carchemish, you know, that's taking place, and you can, everything's dated. Now, when it comes to Carchemish, let me just say this, it was the location of one of the decisive battles in world history. It was here the armies of Babylon and Egypt met in battle. The Battle of Carchemish was fought in May or June in the, of 605 BC, between an allied army of the Egyptians and Assyrians against the Babylonian army, the Battle of Carchemish was the end of the Assyrian Empire. Egypt was reduced to a second-rate power. Babylon became master of the Middle East. After the Babylonian Empire breaks the power of Assyria, in its westward sweep, it destroys Judah and conquers Egypt. So this is what is happening. Now, if you'll notice, there's a few years difference because, um, Josiah is trying to keep Pharaoh from getting to Carchemish, he delays them. it doesn't work. And then a few years later, there's another battle at Carchemish, and that's the famous battle of Carchemish. All right. And so now, the uh, let's see, the capital is now in Babylon, and that's a world power. Let me go back up here, let's just see what I have here. Again, you see it's the fourth year of Yeho You have the battle of Carchemish, you see he's prophesying against Egypt uh look at second kings 24 1 it says in his days nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came up and Akim became his servant for how many years three years and then he turns and rebels against him okay so we're going to go to the end of Akim's reign well here's the babylonian empire the medes and the persians are yet to come they're next they're to the right but if we go to this chart, you'll notice in the bottom blue, this is the end. See, he reigned rule for 11 years, but the last three years, Yakim rebels against Babylon. So now Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and what do we see happens here? When the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians in 605 B.C., Judah became a tribute now to the state of Babylon. But when the Babylonians suffered a defeat in 600 B.C., the king of Judah, Jehoiakim defected back to the Egyptians. So the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, raises an expedition to punish Judah in 597 B.C. But guess what happens? Jehoiakim dies, okay, before he can even get there. So what do we see in 2 Kings 24, 6, and 8? Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Yehoyakim, his son, reigned in his stead. But just like with Pharaoh Necho, do you think Babylon is going to allow Judah to decide who's king? No. That's why he comes and he only reigns three months because Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, sorry, you're out of here. I'm putting this other guy in. It says the king of Egypt did not come anymore out of his land for so the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt, clear to the river Euphrates, all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign and he reigned in Jerusalem how long? That's right, because Nebuchadnezzar was upset that his father had rebelled against him for the last three years. He brings an expedition, he comes in. This guy dies, but his son is ruling and reigning, and he throws him out. And look at Second Kings 24, 9 through 12. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You think they'd learn, according to all his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. The city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants besieged it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So Nebuchadnezzar has been reigning for eight years. This kid is only, he's very young. Uh, there, there's a, someone says a scribal error. I don't know if you know this, but in one section it says Jehoiakim was only eight years old. Another says he was 18 years old. We're not sure what he was, but even if he's 8 or 18, you get this big world power coming in and says, you're out of here. He's going to take his mommy and come in and say, okay, I'm out of here. Okay, and that's this is what happens. And so the new king of Judah, Jehoiakim, Ken, an N instead of an M, he hands the city of Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar, who then appoints a new king over Judah, Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah is only 21 years old, and he was Yehoi, uh, Yehoi Akim's brother. Okay. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He takes about 10,000 Jews to his capital in Babylon. All right. I don't know if you can see that PowerPoint up there again. So you can see Zedekiah in the blue. He reigns 11 years. And uh, let's look at this chart here for a minute. Uh, you'll see here Jeremiah to the far left. You have Jeremiah 22 and 31. 597 B.C., uh, 10,000 captives are taken. That's from Second Kings 24. Uh, we see Zedekiah is 21 years old. Uh, if you go to 594, a Shemitah year, I have the date on the bottom because this is the bottom of my Excel spreadsheet now, but I wanted to give you an idea where it is. You can see now is Jeremiah 50 and 51, Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah 28, 29. Uh, the next year is the 13th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And now you see Ezekiel begins his ministry in 592 BC, chapters 1 through 7. This is now the 30th year of finding the Torah scroll. It's the fifth year of the captivity when the 10,000 were taken. This is Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10, 12 through 19. Ezekiel's now 30 years old when he begins his ministry. Uh, you'll see uh, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign in the blue, going up as all the other Jeremiah chapters you'd want to read in, in Kings and Ezekiel. The 10th year, you can go back up. You can, again, you see all these different books and chapters to read. Uh, Zedekiah is 32 years old. This is when Jeremiah was taken out of prison. Uh, you can see the, Jeremiah is now 62 years old at this time. And uh, the temple is destroyed in 587 B.C. I have that listed. Uh, I have Deuteronomy 28:36 because this is the prophecy about all these horrible things happening. Uh, but anyway, I, I kind of break it out here. That's what this chart is for, to help you kind of as you're reading different things, you can read it in the right uh timeline. But here's the thing that's mind-blowing to me. This date, 597 B.C., is so significant. This is when Zedekiah begins to reign. And if you'll notice, that top verse is what? Esther chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. Okay, get a load of this. I'm going to go to Esther, just verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Look at what it says in the book of Esther. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. This is dating exactly when Mordecai was taken. Now the question is this, is Mordecai a brand new baby? Is he 10 years old, 20 years? How old is Mordecai? It just says, it specifically says though that Mordecai was taken in that captivity, doesn't it? Okay, now we're going to look at something here in a little bit. But I wanted you to notice the date of when that happened. That's when Mordecai was taken in 597 BC. That's what it says in Esther. Okay, but going back to Mattaniah or Zedekiah... See, he has two different names, because Nebuchadnezzar changes his names. His name rules 11 years. We see in 2 Kings 24:17 17-20, the king of Babylon makes Madaniah his father's brother king in his stead. Changes his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah is 20 year, 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Yehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled. He also rebels against the king of Babylon, which is why he comes back again and uh, destroys the city. So what happens? Zedekiah defects uh, from the Babylonians one more time. Nebuchadnezzar responds with another expedition in 588, conquers Jerusalem in 587, 586. He catches Zedekiah, and guess what he did? Now, Zedekiah... He's only 32 years old, okay? He's got kids. Now, if anything, if he has kids at the same time the other kings did, these kids are about 16 years old, okay? And look at what it says. Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar caught him and forced him to watch his sons get murdered, and then they blinded Hezekiah, poked his eyes out after he saw his sons murdered. And then again, Nebuchadnezzar deports the prominent citizens somewhere between another 800 to 1500 people. What's uh, interesting, if you remember, what did uh, Pharaoh Necho do? He went to Ribla, remember? Let's put Ribla back up here. This is what the Egyptians did. They took him, if you recall, on our last one to Ribla. Well, now, Babylon's in control. And uh, guess what he does in Jeremiah 39, 5 and 6. Uh, I have Second Kings twenty three thirty three, which is a reminder verse of what he did. But in Jeremiah thirty nine, what do we see? Zedekiah is running for his life. The Chaldeans' army pursues after him, overtakes him in the plains of Jericho, and when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah, in the land of Hamath where he gave judgment upon him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of of Judah now one of the things that's amazing if you remember Yehoi Jehoiakim and his mommy and everyone was taken in that first big captivity right well guess what happens 37 years later this is amazing in 560 bc uh it says jeremiah 52 it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim king of Judah in the 12th month 25th day of the month that a new king is in Babylon. It's no longer Nebuchadnezzar, it's now evil Morodach, king of Babylon. In the first year of his reign, what does he do? He lifts up the head of Yehoiachin, king of Judah, brought him out of prison, spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the thrones of the kings that were with him in Babylon, changed his prison garments, and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon, every day a portion of the day of his death, all the days of his life. That's an amazing detail. But you know what's really crazy? Look at this. So let's go back now. This is uh, 560 B.C. when evil uh, Morodach, because it was 597 th- minus 37 years, is 560 B.C. So remember, 37 years has gone by. We're going to pretend Mordecai was a newborn just to be kind. Okay? It's now been at least 37 years, Right? Okay, here's 558 B.C. There's a new king in Babylon. It's instead of evil Mordok, it's now Neroglasser. He's mentioned in Jeremiah 39 as one of the princes. 536 B.C., Cyrus is his decree. Now the Medes and the Persians have overthrown Babylon. 536, Cyrus decrees to rebuild the temple. Now we're going to jump to 486. It's now been 111 years since the first captivity. This is King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. And then it says in the third year of his reign, Vashti comes, okay, dethroned. In the seventh year of his reign, and then it says in the 12th year of his reign in the book of Esther, Haman Casper, and then the next year, Mordecai is now 124 years old. I have them in different colors because I don't have the exact years in between. But when you date this, Mordecai, if he was a newborn, is 124 years old. If you think he was 10 or 20, then he's even older. So Mordecai is a minimum of 124 years old when Haman is pulling him around on a horse recognizing him. I was astounded when I looked at this timeline. You know, not still think of this when you read Esther and hear about Mordecai, you, you think he's you know in his 40s or 50s or something like that, a young guy like me. <laughs> But if you'll notice on your notes here, I have the approximate chronological order of chapters. Look at the order of how you want to read the book of Jeremiah. Now you can you know you can kind of I mean you could read sixteen before fifteen or whatever. These are really in groups. I probably should have highlighted the groups, but if if you were to read it in this order, you're gonna understand the book of Jeremiah a whole lot better. You really will. Now let me give you an example of how it's out of order. If you look at Jeremiah 25, I'm going to prove to you it's not in chronological order. In Jeremiah 25, 1, it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, right? That's what I have underlined. Okay, now we're going to jump to 36. In chapter 36, when is it? It's still the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now let's jump to 45. What is it? It's still the fourth year of Jehoiakim. But if you go in the middle of the 28, it's the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, who is after him? And if you go to 32, it's the 10th year of Zedekiah. So you're bouncing from the 4th year of Yakim, okay, to the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. You go back to the 4th year of Yakim, You go boom to the end of Zedekiah, back to the 4th year of Yakim. So you can see for yourself, it's not in chronological order, guys. It's telling you it's not in chronological order. So I'm trying to help you when you read the book of Jeremiah to understand it. If you want to read it, to understand it, you've got to read it in chronological order. If you read these chapters in this order, you're going to, it's going to make a lot more sense. <clears throat> but now I want to close with this part of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as what kind of a prophet? The weeping prophet. Who was Jeremiah? Where did he live? Well, he was a son of Aaron. I want you to get that in your mind. Jeremiah was a son of Aaron. He was not only a prophet, he was a priest. A priestly family. A prophet who lived in the city of Anathoth in the tribe of Benjamin, close to Jerusalem. Around 649 BC, Jeremiah is born. Two years later, Josiah is born. Josiah is eight when his father Ammon, at 24 years old, is murdered in his own house. And so Josiah grew up without a father. Here he is a king without a father. Now let me ask you about Jeremiah. He was a man of sorrows and rejected, right? Now he's a priest. Do you think he gets along well with the other religious authorities? Okay? I mean his associates, the priests, the prophets, the people in general. Look at Jeremiah 26, 8. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made it into speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people ceased him, saying, You're a dead man. Wow, I thought you were my associates. I thought you're the priests, uh my friends. Well, how about The politicians, was he a friend of the politicians? But the princes and the kings, let's look at Jeremiah 38, 4 and 5. Therefore the princes said to the king, We beseech you, let this man be put to death. For he weakens the hands of the men of war that remain in the city in the hands of all the people and speaking such words to them. This man seeks not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. So Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he's in your hand. The king, what can he do against you? What kind of a wimpy king is this? I'm only the king. What can I do against you guys? But anyway, so the politi- the priest didn't like him. The politicians didn't like him. Maybe his neighbors. How about his neighbors in Anathoth? His own hometown. Jeremiah eleven twenty one. 21. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, the sons of Aaron, that's who lives there, the sons of Aaron. They seek your life, saying, Don't prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Man! The sons of Aaron, his his own family line. Look at Jeremiah one one. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth. He lives in Anathoth. He's of the priests, and the priests are ready to kill him in his own hometown. Well, how about his friends? Surely Jeremiah has some friends. Let's look at Jeremiah twenty ten. I have heard the defaming of many. Terror on every side. Denounce, and we will denounce him. Say, all my familiar friends, they that watch for my fall, peradventure he will be persuaded, and we shall prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. All of his friends, his familiar friends, they're against him. Well, how about his own immediate family? What about, you know, mom and dad, my brothers and sisters? Look at Jeremiah 12:6. For even your brethren in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Believe them not, though they speak fair words to you. Man, this poor guy, even his own family. Matter of fact, look at Jeremiah 15.10. Jeremiah says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. Look at this. Look at this. Jeremiah 20.14-15, he says, Curse me the day when I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bare me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying a male, ch- a man child is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide because he slew me not from the womb. Or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Man, well, how about How about his own family? Did he have a wife and kids? Maybe they supported him. What does it say? Jeremiah 16, 1 and 2. God says to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord was to me saying, you don't even take a wife for yourself. Don't even have any sons or daughters in this place. Was he one solitary fellow or what? So I just wanted to kind of give you just a quick historical overview And what Jeremiah's life, personal life was like. Now we're going to go back and do this all over again, chapter by chapter. And we're going to read through these things. And I recommend, before you come next week, kind of take these few chapters. Let's take this time. Let's read the book of Jeremiah. Read the chapters in the order that I have for you guys over the next week. And then when we come back, we'll kind of break it apart. Sound like fun? All right. All right, what well, stands? I can't believe I got it done. It's a miracle. All right. Boy, encourage people to come. Even though they missed this, they can live stream it. But get as many people as you can to come next week. It's going to be gooder. That's all right. Father, we just thank you so much that uh, you have called us here at this time to listen to the words of Jeremiah. We live in such parallel times. Father, and if we want to hear the word of the Lord, we got to read the word of the Lord. Father, we want to have understanding of the days that we live in. And as we dig through these uh, prophecies and what these prophets reveal to us, I pray, Lord, it would fall on good ground. We would have hearts and ears and eyes Father, to understand what you're trying to tell us in these days. Bless your people here. Give them all a safe trip home. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thank you for coming. Thank you for studying with us today. If you have any questions regarding the material discussed, please contact me at my email address. It's Mark at elshaddaiministries.us. Be blessed and shalom on the cutting edge of the messianic movement solace radio will rock your faith and bring the bible alive find your savior find yeshua hamashiach and explore the whole bible and discover treasures there
1: solace
2: radio you're listening to solace radio on the meander radio network
3: What was happening was that Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian Greek king, he was the descendant of one of Alexander the Great's four generals after Alexander died. And he ruled over Israel. And the issue with him starts out right away as soon as you know his name. Because Antiochus took the name Epiphanes, means God come as a man. That's that's the name that he took. And he wanted a unified empire meaning he wanted everybody to be the same in his entire empire and of course the Greek empire its culture is called Hellenic culture, Hellenism. So he wanted to Hellenize all the area that he ruled over and what what was happening in Israel that this was what we today call a culture war but it was different because it was a culture war enforced with swords. So it was it was very severe. And temple worship, the temple stood at this time, was replaced by the worship of Zeus. And a statue of Zeus, which I have a picture of, was erected in the temple courts. And if you look at that carefully, the the, the fire is on the altar of God. And there's a statue of Zeus above the fire. And altars were also erected in towns all around Israel where pigs were sacrificed to the Greek Gods. And the penalty for disobedience for this was death. So you can see this was not just a military takeover, but a change in the entire way of life, a change in the culture, a change in the values. Torah study, the study of the Bible was forbidden. It was forbidden to keep Shabbat. It was forbidden to circumcise infants. The holidays could not be celebrated. You could not keep kosher. Caught doing any of those things, you were executed. And all these things that we just mentioned, these were the things that set the Jewish people apart as God's chosen people. It was all forbidden. But also it's important to understand that the moral values commanded in the Bible were also overturned through all this. And sadly, and this is, this is something very ironic, many Israelites went along with the king's enforced paganism. Many of them. They wanted to be more modern. They wanted to be just like everybody else. They wanted to be accepted by the king and his, his government. So picking up the story in 1 Maccabees, chapter 1 and verse 58, speaking of the government, the king's government, they kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. In verse 59, on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. And that was the picture I just showed you. And the desolating sacrifice was a pig, a pig, and the pig's broth was spread all over. And of course, you understand that pigs are unclean. So this was a particularly an abomination. So that was the situation. And remember the date, the 25th day of the month of Kislev on the Hebrew calendar. Well a Kohen, a priest named Mattathias, couldn't take being in Jerusalem anymore because of the persecution and he moved to a town called Modian. And in that time, the Greeks had set up an altar and the king's officers tried to make Mattathias offer a pagan sacrifice and he refused. And then another, another Israelite came forward to offer the sacrifice and holy anger consumed Mattathias. He, he killed the man who agreed to offer the sacrifice and he killed the Greek officer. And of course, then he had to flee all of his family and he fled into the wilderness and what happened was that others who were opposed to what was happening began to join him and they were hiding out from their oppressors but it had developed into an army around Mattathias they dedicated themselves to resisting the king and his mighty army but eventually I have a picture of this Mattathias died and his son Judas or Yehuda took over and Everybody knows the name Maccabee, but probably very few people understand what it means in Hebrew. It actually means hammer. So that was his, that was his nickname because he was such a great warrior, Yehuda Maccabeah, the, the great hammer warrior. And what followed was three years of bloody guerrilla warfare, a ragtag army of dedicated farmers against the mighty Greek army, and many, many people suffered the loss of their property they were injured, they died, they suffered the loss of loved ones, but they were willing to give up everything to follow the Lord. And God gave, as Pastor Tom was saying, miraculous victories to this dedicated army of of Judas, and the Maccabees launched a surprise attack and recaptured Jerusalem and the temple. And then uh, we see the attack there uh, of, of Jerusalem to recapture it, and again, in 1 Maccabees chapter 4, and verse 54, it says, At the very season, and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. So this is seen as the hand of the Lord because it happened on the exact same day, exactly three years after it was defiled, it was rededicated. And then in verse 59, it says, Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Kislev. And that became known as the festival of dedication. And the word for dedication in Hebrew, you guessed it, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So how do we celebrate today? Well, the, most obvious, the second most obvious symbol of it, if I can see the next slide, is this. It's called a dreidel and it's used to play a game uh, to and here we see a picture of some children playing the game because what the people did is they would they would have a bible study or they'd study the torah and uh, when they could see the army guards approaching they would hide the books and get out the dreidel and pretend they were gambling so if we can go back to the slide of the dreidel it has four hebrew letters on there and this picture shows the four letters uh, and they stand for a phrase in Hebrew nes gedol hayah Shem. and that means a great miracle happened there and if you if you study anything about this from israel the last letter is a a pe a pol because in hebrew they, in israel they say it, nes gadol hayah pol a great miracle happened here so the the dreidels in america are different from the dreidels in israel And then the other uh, the other symbol of hanukkah is right behind me uh it's actually called a hanukia many people call it a menorah but the seven branched candelabra that is in the temple is actually a menorah this is called a kanukia it has nine candles and it's uh one candle is lit each day of the eight days of hanukkah and the ninth candle is called the shamas, or the servant candle is used to light the other candles each day. And the origin of this tradition is not in the book of Maccabees, it's in the Talmud in Shabbat 12A, the section. It says that the, the Greeks had when, they had, when they took over the temple, they just went in there and defiled everything. and there was jars of oil for these lamps. The lamps were not candle lamps, they were oil lamps. And the, uh, the Greeks had defiled all the oil in the temple except one jar. And according to the Torah, the lampstand, the menorah in the temple, had to be lit uh, for eight days to consecrate the temple, to, to dedicate it back to God. <clears throat> but they found only one jar of oil that was sealed and had not been defiled. And so they, the one jar of oil, what they understood was that was enough for one day. So in faith, they took that one bottle and they filled the lamp and they began the cleansing process. And here's the miracle It lasted for eight days until the whole cleansing process was completed. And that's why uh, we celebrate about the the menorah and the oil. And the way we celebrate the oil is in the good old Jewish way of making foods with oil. So you'll hear about potato lakis, which are potato pancakes cooked in oil. That's that's a a traditional food for Hanukkah. But also uh, donuts, jelly donuts, uh, which are also cooked in oil. And so those are the traditions for the meal. And of course, also there's been a tradition that has developed of giving gifts. Uh, It started out with giving gelt. Gelt means money in Yiddish. So it was uh, people, my, my grandfather used to give us just like a dollar. But then as our culture became more and more abundant, the gifts became more and more. So now uh, Jewish families like to say, well, you know, Hanukkah's so much better than Christmas because you get eight days of gifts instead of just one day of gifts. <laughs> so that's how we celebrate it. But if we look at the history of this through a spiritual lens, the Maccabees' victory had a very significant effect on the spiritual history of the world and of your personal history. Defeat would have meant the end of biblical Judaism and the assimilation of the people of Israel into the Greek culture. It would have meant the destruction of a culture that kept God's laws. There would have been no temple, no priests. They would not have been able to keep any of the feasts, but also... They would not have been able to keep God's commanded values. All of that would have been gone. <clears throat> so if that happened, no one living in Israel would have been able to live obedient to the laws of God. Well why is that important? Why should that be important to each of you? Well, in the book of Galatians, uh, Rabbi Shaol or Paul wrote this in chapter four, verse four. "But when the fullness of time came, God sent out his Son born of a woman, and born under law. What does that mean? It means Messiah Yeshua had to be born under law, meaning he had to obey all God's laws so that he could be without sin for his sacrificial death to pay the penalty for sins of all people of all times. He had to be an unblemished sacrifice. So he had to obey every law, starting From the day he was born, eight days later, he had to be circumcised, had to be dedicated. None of that could have happened without the temple, without the priesthood. He couldn't have kept all of God's laws with all that function. He couldn't have kept Shabbat. Every week of his life, he kept Shabbat. He couldn't have kept the feasts. Remember the pilgrimage feasts, three of them. Every male had to go to Jerusalem three times a year and celebrate there. He couldn't have kept there. He couldn't have kept kashrut or keeping kosher. None of those things. So if Israel's biblical culture had been destroyed by the Greeks, the Messiah could not have come 170 years later. And also, the defeat would have meant the disappearance of the values taught in the Bible or commanded. Values that are still kept in both Messianic Judaism and non-Messianic Judaism and became the values of Christianity and what we now call Judeo-Christian values, which are the values of the Western World; these values would have been play, replaced by the values of the Greek Empire, Hellenistic values, pagan values, very different from biblical values. And I learned a lot about this by reading Jonathan Kahn's book. I, that was an eye opener, and what the pagan cultures were like, and the way in which they uh, their behavior, which was so so ungodly. We just think of oh, they just they just you know they just build idols and worship idols. Well, they did a lot more evil stuff than that. So biblical practice was forbidden by the king and Greek values were commanded by the king and enforced by his army and these values encourage sexual promiscuity of pagan worship. Many of the pagan worship involved sexual promiscuity, homosexuality and here's the big one, child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was a huge part of all of those pagan cultures. They forbade study of the Bible so there was no freedom of religion. Uh, Speech against the government was forbidden, so there was no freedom of speech. The king's government regulated how parents raised their children. They forbade circumcision of the infants, but they also forbade teaching the children the Bible. Greek culture did not recognize all human beings as being created equal. So bottom line, all believers in Yeshua should be so thankful for the Hanukkah victory of the Maccabees, for them risking their lives, because without it, Yeshua could not have come and y'all would not be saved, right? Now, I'm sure you would think, well, God could have another plan. Yes, he would have, but not this plan. And without that victory, our nation would not have been established on Judeo-Christian values and neither would have Israel. And really the Western world was established on those values. And a lot of the nations of the world have departed from those further than we have. But if, if, if this had not happened, if this victory had not happened, that would not have happened. So King Solomon wrote something that you all have heard. There's nothing new under the sun. Yes. Right? And we often hear the phrase, history repeats itself. Yes. And that's actually the title of my message. History repeating itself through Hanukkah. History repeating. And uh, the Holy Spirit is saying to each of us today that we are living in a repeat of the Maccabees time. When Antiochus ruled Israel and attempted to eliminate biblical culture, attempts to remove Judeo-Christian values from the U.S., from the Western world, and from Israel have always been going on. But I'm 76 years old, and I can tell you from my life's experience, the past 60 years, those attempts have greatly, greatly increased. My childhood and my teenage years were nothing like what our culture is like now. Nothing like that. And up to now, the changes have not been done by force, but by deception. And the changes have been accepted by people because of ignorance and apathy. Apathy. And as in the days of the Maccabees, many who profess to be Bible believers are going along with the destruction of Judeo-Christian values because they want to be just like everybody else. And it's not in their personal interest to fight, to buck things. And these attempts are being incited and powered, of course, by who? By Satan. By Satan. Because he knows that he has to do this or else he's going to, to be defeated in the end. And these things are carried out by many, what I would call kind of special interest groups or special uh, worldview groups. So I'll give you a list here, and maybe there are some more. But it's, they're being carried out, this attempt to destroy Judeo-Christian values by atheists, socialists, anarchists, social justice and climate change warriors, homosexuals, pornographers, prison and bail reformers, censors, abortion, transgender, open borders, and defund the police advocates, all of those, and there's probably others, are trying to destroy Judeo-Christian values. And why do I say U.S. and Western culture are established on Judeo-Christian values? Maybe you don't really understand that. Some think the biblical values have only deal with a limited part of life, our, our religious practice. Oh, and we know it prohibits Uh, adultery and fornication, homosexuality, uh, but maybe it doesn't cover a lot of areas of life. So I'm going to do something that I think will surprise many of you to learn how many of our U.S. national values and the values of many other Western countries and Israel are based on scripture, okay? So we're going to go through some scripture, but first we're going to start with uh, a document that all of you should have learned about in your American history class is called Declaration of Independence. And here's how it starts. Get the next slide. We hold these va- these truths to be self-evident: that all men are created equal; that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights; and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's just the beginning. So the Bible teaches, just to go over this and, and, and break it down a little bit, all human beings are created beings, not evolved, created by God. And God created all human beings as equals, as equals. And God, God endowed, meaning gave, all human beings all of our rights, not governments, God gave us all of their rights our rights. And to those of us who are Jewish, this value is so important because for many centuries prior to the founding of the United States and since, we have suffered terribly at the hands of those who don't hold to this value of all men being created equal. Because that's how, that's how the Nazis justified murdering us. We're not equal. We're not, we're not part of the human race. It also says our rights are unalienable. And I looked up what that means, it's very interesting. It means they cannot be taken away from us or given away by us. Why? Because they're not granted to us by anyone except God. So we can't get rid of them and nobody can take them from us. Those are our rights. And the three rights enumerated here are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And of course you may recognize that this is where the pro life movement's got the slogan right to life right from the, the declaration of independence we have a right to life liberty here does not mean freedom to do whatever you want to do it means freedom to follow god and happiness happiness includes shalom peace acceptance justice prosperity and a whole bunch of other things so that's just The Declaration of Independence. Now let's look at the biblical foundation of some of our other national values, all of which have been significantly challenged over the past 60 years. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, in Matthew chapter 13 verses 24-30, for the sake of time I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to summarize it. Yeshua teaches that we believers should not persecute or destroy unbelievers but should let them live together with us until the final harvest, when the angels will deal with them on the judgment day. Do you know what this parable is the basis of? One of our amendments to our constitution. You think of what it is? Freedom of religion. Freedom of religion. And because religion includes speech, like I'm doing now, reading and assembling, freedom of religion implies what? Freedom of speech freedom of press, and freedom of assembly. You see that? All based, I believe, on the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And these are, of course, highly cherished biblical values, national biblical values. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not listen to the voice of Adonai, the Lord your God, to take care of all... To do all his meets vote, all his commandments and statutes that I am commanding you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Disobeying God's laws carries a fearsome penalty. Curses coming on you. Therefore, respect for the law is a biblical national value. Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. What biblical national value is that? Traditional family, one man and one woman as parents, is a biblical national value and is a foundational building block of our society. Exodus 20, verse 14, Do not commit adultery. Marital faithfulness is a biblical national value. Also, the prohibition of incest and bestiality are biblical national values. Leviticus 18:22. You are not to lie with a man as with a woman. That is an you know the word? Abomination. abomination. Homosexuality is strongly prohibited, an abomination to God. Its prohibition is one of our biblical national values. Exodus 20, verse 13. Do not murder. Protecting the lives of innocent people is what? Biblical national value. Leviticus 18, 21. You are not to give any of your children in sacrifice to Molech and defile the name of your God. I am Adonai. Protecting the lives of babies in the womb, also a biblical national value. Numbers 30 verse 2. Whenever a man makes a vow to Adonai or swears an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he is not to violate his word, but do everything coming out of his mouth, abiding by promises, keeping your word, contracts is a biblical national value now you may not be aware of this but in many parts of the world honoring business agreements and contracts is not part of the culture and when Americans attempt to do business in those places they're surprised they can't take it for granted that people will do what they promise that's a biblical national value Deuteronomy 6 verse 6 these words which I am commanding you today are to be in your heart and then to parents you are to teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. What are you to teach your children? The words of God. Educating our children in God's word is a biblical national value. Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans I have for you in mind for you, declares Adonai, plans for shalom and not calamity to give you a future and a hope that each of us has a purpose and that our nation has a purpose in God's plan is a biblical national value. Exodus 20:15, Do not steal. And 16. Do not fear. Do not bear false witness against your neighbors. Integrity in government, in industry, and in all relationships is what? Biblical national value. Exodus 12, verse 12. Watch yourself and make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land we are going or they will become a snare among you. You know what this is the basis for? Borders. Borders. We have a culture in this country based on Judean Christian culture. Other countries around us don't necessarily have that culture. And if we had open borders, anybody can come in, what happens? Dilutes our our devotion to our national values. So protecting citizens... From ungodliness around us, borders is a a biblical national value. Here's an interesting one. Deuteronomy 8.18. Rather you ought to remember Adonai your God, for it is he who gives you the power to make wealth in order to establish his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is today. The ability to make wealth, free enterprise, free enterprise is a biblical national value. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers, governing this darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, fighting against evil in the spiritual war between good and evil, God and Satan, is a biblical national value. Now, sadly, some of these national values were never perfectly achieved. The United States is still allowing the killing of babies in the womb. But, as a nation, we've come closer to achieving these biblical values than any other nation in history. Here are some of our positive accomplishments. Our founding fathers established a lasting democracy. We abolished slavery. Women achieved the right to vote. Anti-discrimination laws are enforced in housing. Equal opportunity laws are enforced in employment. We fought against and defeated many tyrannical dictators bent on conquering the world. And our values have spread to many parts of the world along with the gospel. And it's interesting that we've learned just recently that our biblical values are necessary for us to be a democracy. When we attempted to bring democracy to the Muslim world like Afghanistan and Iraq, we discovered democracy doesn't work there. It only works where there are Judeo-Christian biblical values in the culture. So why is it important for Judeo-Christian values to remain? Well, first of all, when we as individuals or as a nation violate these values, we bring upon ourselves God's judgment, which will destroy us. Second of all, relating back to the time of the Maccabees, the destruction of biblical culture in Israel would have made it impossible for God's prophesied, predicted plan to come to pass. For Yeshua to come as the sinless Lamb of God to redeem all who put their trust in his sacrifice. And the state of Israel was founded on Judeo-Christian values and the destruction of biblical and Judeo-Christian values is happening in Israel today. And these same evil forces are seeking the destruction of Israel as a nation. So, if that is accomplished that will make it impossible for God's prophesied plan to come about. Because his word says the temple is going to be rebuilt and the sacrifices are going to be restored, the priesthood is going to be restored to functioning. He says all that's going to happen. And if Israel is destroyed as a nation or biblical values are destroyed, can that happen? No. And when the nations of the world attack the Jewish people in Israel, they're attempting to prevent God's plan from being fulfilled. Now, of course, Satan knows this and is constantly inciting people against Israel and against its values. And you may not be aware of this, but Israel is also being attacked by cultural forces like we are, attempting to get people to turn away from biblical values. There's a gay pride parade in Jerusalem every year, in Jerusalem, not just Tel Aviv, but in Jerusalem. Abortion is legal in Israel. There's much opposition to Shabbat restrictions on doing business in Israel. Many Israelis are willing to divide Jerusalem and the rest of the land, just anything, will give away anything to just for a promise of peace, which has never worked. Many refuse to take a strong stand against terrorists. Many Israelis oppose the development of more cities because they fear Palestinian reaction. Many Israelis oppose the rebuilding of the temple because they fear Muslim reaction all around the world. So if biblical values and Judeo-Christian culture of Israel are destroyed, temple will not be rebuilt. God's plan will not be fulfilled. And Messiah will not return. Now again, God will have some other plan, I'm sure. But this plan will not work. And we know it will work. Why? Because we've read the end of the book. (laughs) Right? So it will work. But these are the dangers, and somebody has to fight to make it work. Now how have these attacks come? So I'm just going to give a little chronology, like I say, of what I saw growing up. I was a teenager in the 60s, and things began to change with a great technological advance, birth control. The pill opened the door to sexual promiscuity without the inconvenience of pregnancy. It also contributed to the tearing down of our respect for God's laws. God's prohibition of sexual relations outside of marriage no longer seemed necessary. And then in the 70s, this turn away from the fear of the Lord resulted in the legalization of abortion to enable greater sexual freedom. And since then, the murder of 60 million babies in America, which has made us deserving of judgment from the Lord. And our societies turned away from respecting God's laws in many other ways using foul language in entertainment, the media. It didn't happen when I was a teenager. Drug use was just starting, pornography. And then in the 1990s, many young radical socialists became teachers in universities. And these socialist professors hated America, hated our biblical culture, they were atheists. So for the past 30 years, they've been teaching most college students their philosophies, which include being an atheist, being anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, against traditional families, against fossil fuels, and basically against America. Teaching that America is a racist, colonialist, and oppressing nation. Emphasizing the wrongs we've done to Native Americans and Blacks, which are true, but ignoring the enormous contributions we've made to improving this world. And more recently, social justice expanded from ethnic or gender injustice to include protections for homosexuals and transgender people. Definitely not a biblical value. And in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down all state bans on same-sex marriage. They legalized it in all 50 states then you all remember the bathroom locker room struggle right now we are seeing battles about allowing transgender males to compete against females in college sports and even the olympics and then following the 2020 election climate change became the big issue and abundant red tape was used to block the expansion of our energy industry preventing it from continuing to have the ability to export energy, which it had just four years ago, and making us once again dependent on what? Foreign oil, which has caused this current economic downturn. It's pretty obvious. Energy is at the the base of making anything. And wherever government officials were social justice warriors, they have allowed flagrant law-breaking in the form of demonstrations that turned into riots, because respect of the law has been greatly decreased. This is all anti-biblical, against biblical knowledge, the biblical value of respect for the law. And then in 2020, the COVID pandemic provided the open door for the government to declare lockdowns, social distancing, masking, vaccine mandates, all of which increased government control over you and I. And we're also experiencing crime waves, increased murder rates. Why? Because of bail reform, which has been implemented in our state, which is that people who are arrested get out right away. They don't even stay in jail. They don't have to post bail. They're out right away. And of course, we're experiencing cancel culture and censorship. So when someone stands up for biblical values, they're attacked on social media. Their bosses fire them because they're afraid that they'll be attacked too. And amazingly, just the last two weeks, the revelations from the Twitter files that have been made public about election fraud showing that Twitter knowingly and conspired to block the information about election fraud and about the laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop. And then we've seen... The FBI and the Department of Justice politically weaponized, investigating the possibility of President Trump colluding with Russia for like four years, pressuring social media to block any mention of election fraud or of of Hunter Biden's laptop. Satan's goal is the destruction of America as we know it. Our economy replaced with a socialist state operating without fossil fuels or nuclear power. Free housing. Free college education, free, well, free healthcare, sounds great. But where would the money come for all this? Taxing the rich. But there wouldn't be any rich anymore. Because every government in history that has had a government-run economy has been an economic disaster. Every single one. Or it has resulted in a tyrani- tyrannical police state like Communist China. So Satan's goal is also open borders, no police, no legal guns, no bail, reimagined courts and prisons, eliminating fossil fuel by taxing it, legalizing free abortion, same-sex marriage, same-sex couples adapting children, the prohibition of counseling for gender-confused youth, transgender people having a right to participate wherever they want. Have I said enough? (laughs) Can you see that we are in a repeating time of history? Just like the Maccabees, Biblical Judeo Christian values being destroyed. We're nearing the end of days as predicted in the Bible. Thank God so far, those things have not been enforced with the sword as it was back then. But they're still being enforced by the government. So, there's two strategies we can have to deal with all this. First, there's nothing we can do, we're powerless. Let's just keep a low profile, keep your head down, don't get caught in the crossfire. Because the Lord is going to return soon and straighten all this out. And it's all going to burn. And we just have to survive and keep our families safe until the rapture. I hear a few few no's. I hope there's a lot of no's on that. Or we can obey Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You, you are the salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salting again? It is no longer good for anything except being thrown out for the people to trample on. Now, now we in the Northeast have a problem with understanding this. Because we use salt to melt snow on the ground. And it's useful. Right? Right? But back then, well, first of all, they didn't have enough snow to melt. But back then, salt was a preservative. A preservative. So that's what this is talking about. Salt is a preservative. We are to preserve godly values, a godly culture. And... and Salt makes things taste good, so we are to make walking with the Lord attractive, so that other people want to do that. Verse fourteen: You are the light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse fifteen: Like when, so when people light a lamp, they don't cover it with a with a bowl, but I put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people, so that they may see the good things you do and praise your father in heaven do good things and give God the glory for it and people will say well that is awesome that God inspired you to do that that's what he's saying to do here and he's also saying to let your light shine by speaking out let yourself be salty by speaking out so that's the second strategy stand for righteousness stand for godly values pray continue to do good And expect God will do miracles just like he did for the Maccabees and the verse that I always think of where that I think is so important in this is in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 where it says where sin increased grace overflowed even more grace God's grace God's power overflowing even more so I can see victories coming as the weakening what's been happening as the weakening our of our national values has led to decisions that clearly create more problems than they solve. Like transgender people having the right to do what they want, men who identify with women can now compete in women's athletics and use women's locker rooms and bathrooms. And result, women are rising up and saying, No, no, our girls have the right to compete against other girls, not against men. And we don't want to walk into locker rooms and have to be confronted with a man changing there. So this is backfire. It's backfire." Demonstration should not be kept under control by the police use of force. Police are are shut down, move back, don't resist. It turns into riots and arson and looting. Police brutality is a problem. Police should be defunded. And what have we seen? The Murder rate in cities are skyrocketing. So we need more police. Police are retiring in large numbers and people are not entering police work. So we're seeing that, that God is answering our prayers by when they implement these things they, the, 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 the negative consequences are obvious tie the hands of the energy industry what happens? the price of gasoline goes up to $5 and what happens when gasoline goes up to $5? the price of everything goes up because everything is dependent on on energy it's, it's just obvious so Well, seeing that, it's not all at once, but we need to stand during these times. We need to continue to stand and not give up. Ephesians 6, 11, Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. In verse 12, We are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authority, and cosmic powers governing this darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They are the ones that are inciting people, using people, manipulating people to do their bidding, to destroy the biblical values, the the, the biblical culture that we had. Now last week, Rabbi David talked about standing firm, meaning prepare yourself for the battle so when the battle comes, you can actually do something effective. Prepare how? Through knowing the word, through prayer, through worship. Be ready when the battle comes. Be ready to speak out. Prepare by putting on the spiritual armor and the weapons you God God supplies. Know the truth. Know what I just shared with you about how our biblical values are based on Scripture. So when people start talking about, oh, it shouldn't be that way, you can say, well, here's what the Bible says. Especially when it's other believers because there are many who are going that route. In faith, stand and believe that we will have victory by proclaiming God's word and stand in prayer at all times, persistently be encouraged, keep up the good fight in the Spirit, in prayer and intercession, and let your light shine. Stay salty. Sign petitions, write letters, talk to other people. We could be very near the end, or we could have years of continuing conflict like this. We are not called to surrender, but to continue to stand for righteousness. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Just agree with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Maccabees. We thank you for their courage, their dedication, to give them victory and to preserve the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah and for doing what was needed so Messiah could come. And we thank you that they also preserved what you put in your word of how the Jewish people were supposed to live. We thank you for that. We thank you for the Feast of Edification, when even as today and at the party tomorrow and during the week, we can remember and be inspired by their courage and by your moving for that victory. And I just pray, Father, for all who have heard this, that if they haven't got it, that they would really see that we are living in similar times. We are living in times of attack on the, our values, which are your values, what we call Judeo-Christian values. And we just repent right now of our own apathy toward this and our own ignorance. And we repent for our nation because many in our nation, we, we repent for the church, which has many parts of it have given in and said, oh, we'll, we'll go along with that. We'll go along with that. We repent for them, Father. We repent We ask your forgiveness, and we ask for a turn. We ask for courage, the courage of the Maccabees to stand up for biblical values. And then, Father, help us to teach our children, because this may go on way beyond our lifetimes, and our children may be the ones that have to stand. Help us to teach our children godly ways when the world is shouting the opposite at them all the time, through the internet and through every media source, it's shouting the opposite. And Father, we pray for those who have gone along, people who are promoting these ungodly values. We pray for the light of the truth to break through. We bind the deceiving spirits that are manipulating them and causing them to turn away, especially if they proclaim to be believers, Father. We bind that power. We bind that power. We pray for the revelation of your word upon them in the name of Yeshua. And, Father, we've seen that, that some of these decisions that get made, they cause so much havoc that even the people who promoted them have to take a step back and say, oh, well, well maybe, maybe we were wrong. So we pray for that breakthrough, Father. In all these different areas, in the area of criminal, criminal justice, in the area of the borders, in the area of energy, in the area of uh, sexuality, all of these areas where they've made these decisions and they're backfiring. We pray for that wake up amongst them to see that this is not going to work, that this cannot go on this way. And we pray you bring them to repentance. And we ask, Lord, that you show us where and how and when to stand for righteousness, how to let our light shine, how to be salty, how to do good works, so those who oppose you will praise their Father in heaven. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.
0: Stay tuned to Solace Radio.
3: You're listening to Solace Radio, Monte Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program.
1: We are continuing our series in the book of Luke today. We're in Luke chapter 3, and I I bit off a pretty big chunk. We're going to do chapter 3, verses 7 through 22. So I hope you brought your lunch, because we'll be here a while. If you did bring your lunch and you brought brisket, please feel free to share. I just wish there would have been one of those miracles, you know, the loaves of bread and the brisket with Yeshua. (laughs) Because fish, I don't know. Anyways, we are in the book of Luke, and let me just give you a, a quick recap. We, we covered the first six verses right before Pesach. So let me give you kind of like the who, what, where, when uh, brief description. We're in the 15th year of Tiberius, as you can find in Luke chapter 3. So we're somewhere between the year 26 and 29 uh, CE of the Common Era. Who? The Word of God came to John. That's how the, this, this chapter opens up. What's going on? John went through the whole Jordan region proclaiming an immersion involving turning, God from, turning to God from sin. One commentator's pers- uh, uh, comments are this, the immersion John was proclaiming addressed moral impurity, not ritual impurity. Moral impurity occur- occurs because of bad choices that, bad pe- that people make. No ritual washing can remove moral impurity. In other words, a bath cannot take away the sins of stealing and gossip. Does that make sense? However, John's doing more than just that, but he's particularly immersing people in water. When, uh, where is this happening? Again, it's in the, the region of the Jordan, the, the Jordan River. Uh, quite possibly in Perea, the the area known as Perea on the east side of the Jordan River, which is under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who's mentioned in verse chapter 1. Verse chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Herod Antipas is is one of the children, one of the sons of King Herod, who's king when Yeshua is born uh, a short time earlier. 30-ish years earlier. So now we come to this section starting with verse 7. Therefore John was saying to the crowds that came out to be immersed by him, You brood of vipers. Man, he's an encouraging preacher, isn't he? I find find that very encouraging. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance. And don't even begin to say among yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that from these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that's a, that's a good way to start. Like John is really like, Coating it in some sugar and drawing people in with the sweetness of the word, uh, and 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 just holding off on on uh, the full revelation of what is to come. No, I'm. I, I say that because John's not doing any of that. John starts with you brood of vipers, or you children of vipers, not the vendo vipers, but the snake. You know, it's interesting, during that time period, I I don't know if if this is fact today, if it's scientifically proven, but it was understood that the children of vipers ate the mother as they were coming out. So they're even worse, the children are even worse than the parent. So he's not even going with, hey, you guys are a bunch of vipers out there. Not the dodge vipers, the snake. And he's not even just calling them that. He's like, you're the ones who eat and consume everything that's gone even before you whether it was good or not. And you've destroyed it. And then he says, who warned you to escape the coming judgment? It's interesting. This coming judgment that John is mentioning, we see throughout the prophets mention of uh, the the day of the Lord or the the great day of the Lord or the, the coming of the Lord or, as Malachi says, the great and terrible day of the Lord. How can something be great and terrible? It's great for those who place their trust in the Lord and it's terrible for those who don't. That's how. And it's the same day. It's not a two different days. He says, turn from your sins and produce fruit that proves you've turned from your sins. In other words, what, he's, what he, he'll connect here in just a moment in terms of don't say you're uh, children of Abraham. What what he's saying is he's saying don't rely on your heritage to save you. We often ask God to remember His covenant with our forefathers. By the way, we did it about twenty minutes ago. Blessed are you, Lord our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Mindful of the patriarch's love for you, you have and you will in your love bring a redeemer to their children's children for the sake of your name. This is all true. But if you rely on the merit of our fathers, then you've missed the point. The merit of our fathers has made it possible for us, but that's not what we're to rely on. While the merits of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are always available, appealing only to ancestral merit is insufficient. Each generation needs to add its own meritorious, meritorious conduct. In other words, the merit of Abraham doesn't give us the leniency to live our lives in a selfish manner, not considering others. We utilize the same principle every Passover. We consider it as if we ourselves were brought out of Egypt. In other words, we recognize the necessity of our involvement in action in response to the action of the Lord today, the axe is already at the root. Has anybody ever swung an axe? You get that axe, and and you got to be careful. By the way, axes are, are they're a tool, but tools like most tools need to be used in a correct manner. The axe is swinging already at the root, and it's already at the base of the tree, ready to strike. You see, at least when I've swung an ax, you, 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 you measure first. You know, you don't just pick it up and be like, hmm. Like, you don't do that. Maybe, I'll, let me put it in a different way. Maybe you play golf. You put the golf ball down. You don't walk away and then turn around and you look at the golf ball, grab your club, and, and then start running like this. If you do, it's not going to go so well. Unless you're Happy Gilmore. <laughs> I heard somebody else say it. But yes, unless you're happy. You have to measure. You, you have to take everything into account. The axe is measuring. It's ready. It's already at the root of the trees, ready to strike. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into fire. That's interesting because John has already referenced the coming day of wrath, judgment, and he's coming back to it again, the coming judgment. Judgment. By the way, this this idea that John is saying, this is nothing new. John was a prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah. How many of you know that when you look through the prophets, there is some very stark language in terms of the relationship between God and the people? It's everywhere in the prophets. You, You read about trees getting chopped down. You read about taking wives, uh, taking a forbidden wife and having children and and then her cheating on him and and relating her cheating as the people of Israel cheating on God. You see it through all of the prophets. It's not new by John. In fact, particularly, he's hearkening back to Isaiah. And we see this. This is what's very fascinating to me in, in terms of timing. It may seem to you all that I plan out my, my messages well in advance. But it's, it's actually not true. So if there's things that seem like a coincidence that they coincide on a particular day, well, I just am going to tell you I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, and I didn't orchestrate that. So what's interesting is this Haftorah portion that's, that John is referencing is actually the Haftorah portion for our Torah portion that we read last Shabbat. And it goes like this. Behold, the Lord, of Tsevaot, will lop off the branches with terror, is Isaiah chapter 10. So the tall ones will be cut down and the lofty ones laid low. Yes, He will hack down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. And then the following two verses in Isaiah chapter 11 will uh, address the coming of the Messiah. Then... So imagine the the tree has been lopped down. So what's left? A stump. Then, this is what Isaiah says, then a shoot will come forth out of the stem of Jesse. You know, you can imagine, I don't know if if you've ever had this experience, but I've cut a few trees down in my yard before. And some of those trees are, are rather irritating. Because if you don't take one of those grinders to it and you just leave it, a tree will grow out of the tree. I say it's irritating in my lawn. It's, it's a blessing in the Scripture because that's what's happened. The tree is gone and there's a stump. And a shoot will come forth out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch will bear fruit out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and insight, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You see, John references those first two verses But how often have I mentioned to you, when you see in Scripture, you see a particular reference to go back and look at it, but don't stop reading where it's referenced because there's more in the passage that's being invoked. It's like, I I say this probably once a month, it's like when I pray, I start my prayer with Avinu Shabbat which is our Father in heaven, which is followed by? Hallowed be your name. When I start it, it should kick the rest into your brain. In fact, if you go, uh, it's, it's such an amazing thing. But if you go to Ethiopia, and I'm sure this is other places as well, but I've experienced it in Ethiopia. If you go to Ethiopia and you're in a, uh, in a, in a setting where there's praise and worship going on, the, the worship leader doesn't sing everything. The worship leader calls out the first two lines, and then the crowd goes. And when the crowd comes to the end of the line, then the worship leader calls out the next two, line, the, the next two words, and it starts the line, and the crowd finishes. And, and actually, if you ever get a chance to do it, to, to be in that moment, I'll say in Ethiopia because that's what I've experienced. It was an amazing, It's an amazing experience. So John is talking about these branches that are lopped off and then a shoot will come forth and the Spirit of the Lord will come and rest upon the shoot. The tzemach. This is the, in, 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 some, in some Jewish thought, this is another name for the Messiah, otherwise known as the branch. A shoot will come forth. A branch will bear fruit out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. You see, the Spirit of the Lord will come and rest upon him. This is, this is the following verse to what John is referencing here in Luke chapter 3. I just want you to just tuck that in the back of your mind for a minute, and we'll come back to it. The crowds were asking him, what should we do? You see, John is speaking to crowds, and they respond, what do we do? And he answers them, he says, whoever has two coats, let him give, the one to, give uh, to one who has none. And whoever has food, let them do the same. Tax collectors also came to him to be immersed. Teacher, they said to him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take more than you were supposed to. Also soldiers came to him asking, what should we do? And he said to them, don't take things from anyone by force. Do not falsely accuse anyone and be content with your wages. John responds to three different groups here in this passage. So let's, we're going to break this down real quick. There's three different groups. The first one is the general. What should we do? This question, by the way, is asked throughout the book of Luke by at least four different groupings of people. So what, what Luke as an author is doing is preparing us for everything else that's going to come later in the book. Two of, the, two of those groups are, are here immediately, tax collectors and soldiers. And then we find later a lawyer and then finally a ruler. In answering these inquiries about what should be done, John answers in a pragmatic way, pointing them to their jobs and their personal relationships. True repentance is a matter of the heart and results in change in everyday behavior. That is the why the word do is repeated throughout this text multiple times. If you have an extra coat… Share it with someone who has none. Whoever has food should do the same. It seems, to me, it seems like common sense. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But apparently, I don't know if you guys realize this, common sense is actually not quite so common. It should be just called wise sense, because not so many people have it. So it's why we get to these, what I, I, when I say common sense, I, I, I think of simple teachings. Uh, But apparently, simple teachings haven't been taught everywhere. So, let me just break it down for you. If you have, share with others. Yeah? Make sense? If you have, share with others. Be ready to share your extras with someone else. You know, maybe unless it's your, like, food plate and you're like, I'm sick right now. Like, maybe don't share that. But if you have, share with others. So, we start with the general group. And then Luke moves us to the tax collectors. The tax collectors, they say, what should we do? Now, let me give you a little context about tax collectors. Today is April 30th. We are less than two weeks post-tax collector season. How many of you guys, April 15th is like your favorite day of of the year? Or 18th, depends on, anyways, I found out that there's a variation this year. April 15th is like the best day in the world. It's tax season. It's the, it's the time of year when I get to give my money to the government. I get to. Yes, please. Everyone laugh because we don't get to. They just take it. Like, it's not an option. But the tax collectors, maybe not so much now. At least, you know, I have a, a CPA who's an honest CPA and helps me through everything. And so I haven't actually met the personal tax collector yet. Tax collectors in that time period were middlemen. They would submit bids to the government, Rome, and say, we can collect your taxes for this amount of money. And the lowest bid won the job. And then what they would do, because it's their job, if they submitted the lowest bid, and, and it wasn't much wiggle room between the bid and the actual taxes collected, is they would take fees. You know, Kind of reminds me about when I go try to buy an airplane ticket, and they're like, oh, you need a fee for a seat. You need a fee for a carry-on bag. You need a fee for a check bag. You need a fee for the air that you're going to breathe. Oh, and and if the oxygen masks drop and you use it, that's a double fee. I'm just joking about the last two. But if the oxygen masks drop, grab one and, uh, you know, take care of yourself before you help your small child next to you. I'm just saying, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a brief that I've done a few times in my life. Anyways, tax collectors, as they are, these are Jewish people, by the way, who are here in this area, in, in Judea, Samaria area. Tax collectors are Jews taking from Jews to pay to Rome. And on top of it, they are taking excess, which actually you can see is against the Torah. And so tax collectors begin to epitomize sin in the the Jewish people's eyes. They're regarded as traitors and they're known for corrupt practices. And this type of sin, stealing from your brother, is actually the very sin that prevents community solidarity. You see, because when I steal from you, what I've done now is I've created a fissure in the community. I've I've divided, I've split the community. The view of tax collectors was so poor, and we even see this in, in Luke, was so poor that the phrase tax collectors and sinners became common. In other words, they were the same. Tax collectors and sinners. But what does John tell them? John answers the tax collectors. John says, collect no more than the government assesses, In other words, his baseline is do no harm, do not take more than what is your due. So now we come to the next group, soldier. What about us? What should we do? The context about the soldiers. These could have been Gentile soldiers or they could have been Jewish ones. Jews in the service of Herod Antipas. Because of the setting, it could be likely that they're Jewish soldiers as I mentioned. In this time period, and and I'll say that for this, it's... It's still true today in terms of soldiers. In, this, uh, in the ancient times, a soldier was paid only enough to maintain a very basic standard of living. And so, contentment with salary was key because discontentment might lead to the temptation to, exhort, uh, to, exhort, to extort additional funds from others. Soldiers occasionally protested their wages And we're known at this time for extorting or intimidating and falsely accusing the local people. So what does John tell the soldiers? Don't intimidate anyone. Don't accuse people falsely. And be satisfied with your pay. Well, that sounds like something that we should just live by today. Whether or not we're a soldier, like I think we can all agree. Don't intimidate anyone. Don't accuse people falsely. And be satisfied with your pay. John does not tell the tax collectors or the soldiers, by the way, to quit their jobs. Notice that. He doesn't say quit that evil profession and get out. Because all tax collectors and soldiers go to hell. No, no. He doesn't mention anything about their job other than to do it honorably. He tells them to behave in a morally correct manner. In fact, later on in the book of Luke, Luke presents both tax collectors and soldiers while still in their occupation as models of righteousness. So we're beginning to see a baseline and we'll see the contrast later. We move on to verse 15. Now the people were filled with expectation. First of all, John has just said, you brood of vipers, stop cheating people, stop intimidating others. Stop falsely accusing people. These are all, he's, critici- he's critiquing. Such a fine line between critique and criticize. He's critiquing, he's criticizing, he's ruling based upon what he sees them doing. And the people were filled with expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John whether he might be the Messiah. John answered them all saying, As for me, I immerse you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh and in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, after being rebuked by John, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things Herod had done, added even this on top of them all. He shut up John in prison. Let's take a look at this section. John is announcing good news. That's what verse 18 tells us. John proclaimed good news to the people. Good news being, at this point, treat people fairly. Stop cheating each other. Stop bearing false witness, stop intimidating, stop stealing. Treat each other well. Sounds very similar to the Ten Commandments, by the way. And in in response to this, the people wonder, is John the Messiah? And John, by the way, discerns what's going on in the crowd. And he says, that's not me. Don't, Don't be mistaken. By the way, he's already said, I'm coming as one to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight the path of the Lord in the wilderness. He then says, I am unfit to untie the sandals of the one who is coming. The untying of the sandals was the duty of the slave. It was the lowest duty that anyone could possibly have to untie the sandals and remove the sandals. And yet we see, now I'm fast forwarding like, 15 chapters, and yet we see Yeshua do that for his disciples. John immerses in water, and the one who is coming will immerse in the Ruach HaKodesh and in fire. He will gather the wheat into his barn and burn up the chaff with inextinguishable fire. He's going back to this theme that he starts with, the great and the terrible day of the Lord. There's always this going back and forth between coming judgment and fire. And then we move on to Herod uh, Antipas and his sin, John addresses his sin here, or Luke mentions it here in this text, his sin of taking his brother's wife. This season of expectancy for the coming Messiah is only heightened by John's rebuke of what could be perceived as the king Or a king in Israel at the time, a ruler. John rebukes him and says, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you committing this moral sin? And the challenge in the people's eyes was to the current ruling kingdom. You see how the people can make that observation? In essence, John is really just challenging the way Herod is living his life, just like he's challenging the crowd. Just like he's challenging the tax collectors, and just like he's challenging the soldier, he challenges the ruling kingdom. But not the kingdom, really, just the ruler and what is going on in his life. But this builds the expectation, and the Messiah is supposed to bring all of the exiles of Israel home. And they're expecting John as the Messiah to challenge Herodian reign and thus also Roman rule. And that those two entities would fall to a triumphant Messiah. But what John is doing is he's challenging the moral disparity, the moral the lack of more any morality that's not just in the ruler, it's in the people, it's in the soldiers, it's in the general crowd. John is attacking all of this and all of the evils that he sees. And on account of this rebuke, John is imprisoned by Herod. We find out later that John uh, was beheaded, or maybe that's just in another gospel. John was later beheaded at the request of Herodias, who is uh, is Herod's wife, but also sister-in-law, who has her daughter dancing in front of Herod, her uncle, And her uncle is pleased at the sight of her dancing in front of him and says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. By the way, if you go look at the Herod family tree, it's a really uh, convoluted family tree. And he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And she says, Mom, what do I ask for? And she says, ask for John's head on a platter. And actually, we read that Herod is actually uh, disturbed by that request, though he follows through with it. It's always easy when we see the challenge of the rich and the famous, it's always easy to judge the rich and famous. Even today in our society, we can judge celebrities, we can judge the wealthy, we can judge all of those who are in sight all the time. But we judge them because they are consistently and constantly in view of everyone. If you can just take a moment and think if your life Was consistently and constantly in view for the world to see. Would you be any better than the rich and the famous? I doubt it. I doubt any of us would be any better. We just have less opportunity to be seen. And so we come to this last section. While all the people were being immersed, Yeshua too was immersed. As he was praying, heaven opened up. You know, Cole mentioned this when when he was talking about heaven opening up and he began to see. As he was praying, heaven opened. The Ruach HaKodesh came down on him in a physical form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. I am well pleased with you. What's interesting, it says, while all the people were being immersed, Yeshua also was immersed. Or Yeshua too was immersed. And Yeshua comes out, and he's praying. By the way, Luke is the only author who mentions Luke praying. Uh, Yeshua praying. I say that because you'll see the need for prayer throughout the book of Luke. Those times when you're when you set yourself off, or Yeshua sets himself off by himself to be alone to pray. Yeshua was praying, seeking the Lord. And we see three things happen as a result. Heaven is opened. Reminds me of Revelation chapter 6 when the skies roll back like a scroll and everyone hides their faces in fear behind rocks and caves. They ask the mountains and the rocks to fall in them and hide them from the face of the one sitting on the throne and from the fury of the Lamb. Heaven opens. And the ruach comes down upon Yeshua in physical form like a dove. And then what we see and what we witness through this gospel, through the, the book of Luke, is a bat kol, which is actually what my dad talked about last week. So let's just review for a minute. A bat kol. It's a heavenly voice that proclaims God's will or divine judgment in a matter, sometimes in a matter of legal dispute. It is considered to be authoritative, mostly. I can think of one really big time when it's not, uh, or at least what's recorded in the Talmud. This bot kol is number one of two that Luke records. The second one occurs at the transfiguration of Yeshua with Mo- Moses and Elijah within the hearing of Peter, James, and John. By the way, they have this great reaction. They're like whoa let's do something like let's build a let's build a sukkah like what can we do that's how luke records the hearing of the bat kol in that case luke doesn't record any reaction to this bat kol which may indicate i'm not saying it does but it may indicate that yeshua is the only one to hear it that this was a moment a private moment of prayer between yeshua and his father What did Yeshua, what did the voice say to Yeshua? It said three things. You are my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased with you. This idea of sonship here with Yeshua stands in direct contrast to what we read at the beginning of this chapter, where the people say, well, what about our father Abraham? You know, we're children of Abraham. This is in direct contrast to that. So what then does this mean for you and me? How should we then live? That's my question out of this. Number one, do your job. I mean, do what you get paid to do. Do your job, but do it in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. What this, is, what this requires is actually requires quite a bit of us. Maybe some of us can't do it because it requires an honest, honest, internal audit of the way we do things and why we do it. Be content with your pay. Well, that's challenging. But my pay is decreasing every day because I can't buy as much now as I could last year. So I've actually had a pay decrease. I don't see anything different in the Scripture. Like, I'm not saying don't fight for equitable pay, but be content with what you have it's not about what you have, but it's about what your attachment is to it. Because if your attachment is to your pay and not to the Lord, then you will never be content. Don't treat others according to what they have and don't have. Both of those happen. Treating others according to what they have or what they don't have. Paul says in the book of Philippians, For whatever circumstance I am in, I have learned to be content. I know what it is to live with humble means, and I know what it is to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment, both to be filled and to go hungry and not have brisket, to have abundance and to suffer need. You know, and then the following verse is actually the verse that everybody quotes because they want want God to bless whatever it is that they're doing. But it's the conclusion of this part. You know, I found contentment in being hungry and being full. But in all things, I can accomplish through Him. Wait, I just messed that up. False accusations. Don't intimidate others or falsely accuse them. This just seems like a, again, a common sense thing to me. But it's not so common. And it happens Every day, of every month, of every year, everywhere. The false accusations go around the world. Happen even here. In fact, I looked up this quote and and I got two different people to whom it is attributed. But if you tell a big enough lie and you tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. So be careful of the lie which you believe. Sometimes that lie comes from within, by the way. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in the next few weeks because we're about to get to chapter 4. But the adversary knows Scripture. Doesn't just know Scripture, he quotes Scripture at Yeshua. He throws Scripture at him often and says, what about that, huh? The adversary throws Scripture around all the time. But do you know, do you know one way to discern the difference between those who are operating in the spirit of the adversary and those who are operating in the spirit of the Lord, look to see who is being aggrandized. Who, in other words, is being lifted up? Who is being served? Because the adversary says, I'm going to be like God, but better. You see, God never says, I'm going to be like anybody. He says, I am that which I am. Everything else is subservient. Are we living, you know, the the crowds at that time were living with great expectation. Are we living with great expectancy of the coming of the Messiah? They lived in a very tumultuous time. They're looking for a Messiah because of the social, the political, the religious upheaval. By the way, what's happening today? Here and around the world a social, a political, a religious upheaval around the world. We are living in tumultuous times today very similar to that which Yeshua experienced. Be careful to whom you look to as your Savior. Always evaluate who it is that you are placing your trust in. Now I can go on listing off Saviors today but I'm just going to do two. And we'll see if I can crush everybody in here. Is it Elon Musk and your hope that he better enables free speech? Is he acting as your savior? Or is it President Obama and his community activity that sparks your hope? Both of them have done good deeds, by the way. Neither of them is my savior. I don't look to a president. I don't look to somebody with a lot of money. I don't look to anyone other than Yeshua Himself to be my deliverer. And in fact, I don't look to anyone else not only to be my deliverer, but to be your deliverer either. Because Yeshua is the only one. There is no other and there never will be. He was, he is, and he will always be our Deliverer. Are we following John's examples? Are we pointing people to God's will and to his agent, Yeshua? Or are we pointing people to ourselves and our causes? Finally, how can we follow in the footsteps of our Messiah? Yeshua submitted himself to his Father he went into the Jordan River and was immersed. He prayed to the Lord. The heavens opened up. The ruach descended upon him, and he heard a batkol from heaven. Do you pray to the Lord? Do you look up, and does God respond to you? It may not be an audible botkol, but do you hear from God? Have you prayed to the Lord today? This maybe even a better question. Do you need to hear? That you are a son or daughter of His, do you need to hear that He loves you? And do you need to hear that He is well pleased with you? Because that's what He tells to Yeshua. And if we are walking in the footsteps of our Messiah, then He'll do the same thing for us. Avinu Shebashamayim, our Father in Heaven, Lord, I thank You for this day, for this Shabbat. Lord, I thank You for Yeshua and for John who served as examples for us. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to better follow Yeshua's example today in our own lives. Lord, we ask that you would turn us to you so that we may return. We bless you, O Lord, in Yeshua's name.
2: Amen. Vihu neka Yisadu naipenavil lecha Vesemlecha shalom Yisadu naipenavil lecha Vesemlecha shalom. Bashem Yeshua Mishenu, in the name of our Messiah Yeshua. Amen. From the San Luis Valley in Southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. The Dead Sea, the lowest point on planet Earth once described as a well-watered plain like the Garden of the Lord. Nearly 4,000 years ago, the crust of the earth split open and out of its bowels belched fire and brimstone that rained down upon the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboin. Abraham stood in the door of his tent on the other side of these mountains and watched as the cities and their inhabitants were incinerated in the inferno. The Jordan River continues to wash minerals from the highlands of Israel into this dead-end chasm. And what appeared to be distant, nondescript rock formations out in the middle of the sun-parched Israeli desert turns out to be the ashen remains of the cities of the plain, found still standing and covered with millions of chunks of brimstone. I'm Michael Rood. Prepare for a rude Awakening. In the book of Genesis, we read that God instructed Abraham to leave the land of Babylon and its perverted system of sun god worship. The Almighty had already confused the languages and scattered the inhabitants of Babylon to slow down the development of Nimrod's political, economic, and religious world government system. The worship of Nimrod's son, Tammuz, the reincarnated sun god, and the worship of Nimrod's wife, reincarnated as Ishtar, were both fragmented into divergent cults at the Tower of Babel. For thousands of years, religiously motivated military campaigns kept these once unified peoples from joining forces to rebuild the one world government that Nimrod had begun. Raised in the land of Shinar, Abraham was instructed to leave Babylon behind, crossing over the Euphrates River into a land that God would give his descendants. Abraham became the first Hebrew, Hebrew meaning to cross over, when he crossed over the Euphrates, leaving Babylonian paganism far behind. The Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Revelation clearly define God's intention to purge pagan sun god worship from the land promised Abraham and then from the entire earth the creator has determined the purpose of life and he states emphatically how he does and does not wish to be worshiped Abraham was 75 years old when he left Babylon bringing his nephew Lot and their families with him. upon entering the land Lot joined himself to a prosperous culture that had developed on this then fertile plain Lot took up residence in the city of Sodom The prophet Ezekiel said that the sin of Sodom was pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. She did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abominations. (coughs) Sorry for this rude interruption, but if you want to know how to get on the bad side of the Almighty, search the scriptures for what God calls an abomination. The word abomination is translated from the harshest words in the Hebrew language, tovah and sheketz, and they mean perverted, disgusting, repulsive, sick, putrid, vile. You get the picture. Their self-indulgent lifestyle led to a perversion named after the city, sodomy, commonly known today as homosexuality. Abraham was forewarned that the sin of Sodom might have reached the point that divine intervention was required. Two angels, who appeared as men, left Abraham's tent to see what was transpiring in the city of Sodom. Upon arrival, the angels were welcomed into the home of Lot. But an aroused group of homosexual men demanded that Lot send these strangers out to them so that they could rape them. Lot refused, so they attacked him on his front porch. The angels pulled Lot to safety inside the house and smote the entire mob with blindness. The scriptures record that they wore themselves out as they groped the house looking for the door. At sunrise, the angels took Lot, his wife, and two daughters by the hands, dragging them away from the city. Soon, fire and brimstone rained down from heaven turning the city into a raging inferno. That is when some scientists believe that the 3,000 mile Great Rift Valley was formed, when the earth's crust fractured and belched fire and brimstone into the heavens. As the brimstone showered down upon the cities, Abraham saw the smoke of Sodom rise up in the distance. But until the smoke cleared, Abraham had no idea that Lot was saved from destruction. The buildings, streets, and walkways throughout the land of Israel are constructed primarily of what is commonly referred to as Jerusalem stone. Like the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem behind me. A calcium rock which is as abundant in Israel as stray cats in the old city. And if you've ever been here, you know what I mean. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah would no doubt have taken advantage of this most common building material for their homes, palaces, and fortress walls just as is used throughout the land today. Archaeologists contribute Sodom and Gomorrah's overt wealth to the flourishing vegetation and the commercial value of the asphalt pits found in this once lush valley. Asphalt oozing from deep in the earth turns this wadi into a surreal landscape the builders of the cities on this plane had access to an unlimited supply of asphalt with which to cement their buildings into indestructible fortresses indestructible until burning brimstone rained from the sky igniting the asphalt mortar and turning the city into a furnace calcium plus sulfur plus fire yields gypsum ash and that is exactly what remains of these cities These structures appear as rock formations from a distance, but those who venture out into this deserted, lion-prowled wasteland soon find their trek to become laborious as they sink ankle-deep in this gypsum ash. When this ash is subjected to flame, it does not even change color. It has already been completely consumed. Substances burned with sulfur can have a higher remaining ash weight than the original substance. That may explain, in part, how this sphinx-shaped object and others like them can remain standing throughout the centuries. The layers of ash, twisted and warped by the intense heat, finally settle into a form that much resembles the original object. The minimal rainfall on this desert contributes to the longevity of these structures, slowly compacting the layers of ash through the centuries. A 90-degree angle rarely occurs in nature, a phenomenon that we diligently search for when looking for a man-made artifact. And on this plateau, we observe two identical elongated pyramids, which highlight the grand entry into the temple site here at Gomorrah. They are identical in length, width, height, and angle of incline, an impossible combination for a naturally occurring rock formation. The entire area surrounding Gomorrah is rock. These are the mountains of Judea, and we are standing on the remains of Herod's mountain fortress of Masada. At its base are the stone cordoned encampments of the Roman army that besieged the Jewish zealots who were barricaded on this mountain after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era. The Romans encamped on the gravel bed of this surrounding plain. But the city of Gomorrah, beyond these encampments, is unique in its structure and composition. Walls, buildings, and temple structures reminiscent of the ancient temples of Babylon are preserved as heavy gypsum ash. Moses referred to the condition of this area by saying, The Lord overthrew Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim in His anger and wrath. The whole land is brimstone and salt and ashes. It is not sown, nor bears fruit, nor grows any grass. desert gazelles scrap a meager menu from the stubble that grows from the bottom of the wadis, dry riverbeds that are occasionally flooded by rainwater cascading from the Judean mountains. The gazelles scour the wadis in search of vegetation, but occasionally paw the ash on the plateaus to find a nutritious treat. This is a natural mineral salt lick, the salt of which Moses spoke. Mineral salts from the bodies of the incinerated citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah continue to leach to the surface even after 4,000 years. After the atomic bombs were dropped that ended World War II in the Pacific, U.S. military inspectors at Hiroshima found piles of white powder near the blast site. Analysis proved the powder to be the mineral salts of the incinerated individuals who were vaporized in the fireball. All that was left was a pile of salt. That discovery and the salt lakes of Sodom and Gomorrah may answer the question what became of Lot's wife? The scriptures indicate she turned back to the doomed city and became not a literal pillar, but in the Hebrew a memorial of salt. All that's left of her and the entire population is the mineral salts, which the desert gazelle now eat you <laughs> In recent centuries, legend has developed that the four cities of the plain were submerged in the briny depths at the south end of the Dead Sea. Yet 500 years after the event, Moses recorded that the cities remain as brimstone, salt and ashes. In the first century of the common era, Shimon Kepha, commonly known as Simon Peter, spoke of the remains of the cities as if it were common knowledge among the Jews of his day. In the second century, the Jewish priest and historian Josephus spoke of their remains still standing in the Judean desert. The Dead Sea has continued to recede since the days that the scriptures were penned. And if they were visible in the days of Josephus, there is no way that they could now be submerged. Through the years, many looked in the wrong places and found nothing. But the cities of the plain were discovered exactly where the scriptures indicate, along the western shore of the Salt Sea and the Dead Sea Valley plain. In the book of Genesis, we read... Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, even as the garden of the Lord. We also read that the kings of the land of Shinar made war with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Abba, Zeboim, and Zoar. All of their armies were gathered together to fight in the valley of Sodom, which, after the destruction of those cities, is now called the Salt Sea. The location of the four cities is cited in the scripture when describing the borders of the land of the Canaanites, which was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. The four cities could only form the border of the Canaanites, if they were spread out along the Jordan River Valley and not grouped together at the south end of what is now called the Dead Sea. In the first book of Shemuel, we read, The Philistines camped at Michmas, and raiding parties went out from the camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth-Horan, and the third toward the border of the land overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the desert. Again, the location of the remains of Zeboim is north of the Dead Sea and is designated as facing the desert in the Great Rift Valley east of Mi'kmaq. These four locations have yielded the same ashen features and brimstone remains that we see here in the city of Gomorrah. The brimstone found here is unique to this part of the earth. Samples have been analyzed in laboratories in the U.S. and also in one of the most prestigious laboratories in the world, the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, which awards the Nobel Prize in the field of science. Critical analysis show this sulfur to be 95.72% pure sulfur with three other trace metals which could generate sufficient heat to melt even stainless steel. Several years ago, I spent an entire week camped out under the stars here in the city of Gomorrah. I'd heard that an archaeologist in the early 1800s had found this site and reported its location. In 1989, another archaeologist stumbled onto this site while working in the area. When I was introduced to the evidence, I was compelled to make a journey to this desert. Trudging my way through the ash by the light of the full moon, I crusted an ashen incline onto this moonlit plateau. Pale yellow balls of sulfur, exposed by a recent fall rain, were perched on the surrounding ash. I crushed one between my fingers and inhaled. This was the reason that I journeyed over 8,000 miles. As a skeptic, I had to see and smell this testimony for myself. I returned to Jerusalem a week later with a suitcase full of brimstone. Finding friends in the old city, I related my adventure to a growing audience who was eager to see if brimstone would still burn after 4,000 years in the desert. Touching a match to a small piece, it immediately became a black oozing mass with a purple plain. We began to choke and gag as the hot sulfur dioxide fumes seared our lungs we evacuated the building and got the brimstone out of the building onto the street where it burned itself out and that was the last time that I lit brimstone indoors but I did learn a valuable lesson being unable to breathe in the presence of the poisonous gases emitted from the brimstone the inhabitants of the cities would have been rendered unconscious they would have died a relatively painless death before their bodies and diseases were cleansed in the fire even in judgment our creator is merciful why did god destroy sodom and gomorrah because um they couldn't find any um any faithful men
3: any godly men.
0: people were doing evil
2: lust sinful lust
3: the sinfulness of them had reached his nostrils in heaven
2: was that right
0: <laughs> they sinned in a way that we shouldn't sin stealing hurting each other
1: i had no idea because they were having all those sex
3: orgies, I just told you. You name it, whatever they had back then. He got angry, sin, disobedience, worshiping, worshiping other gods.
2: I find fascinating parallels in the history of Sodom and Gomorrah and that of our current culture, especially in the United States. The document which has become commonly known in America as the Declaration of Independence recognizes that the Creator has endowed every human being with absolute rights, that no civil or religious entity has the right to alienate from the individual. The public school system in the United States was originally established to teach children how to read the Bible so that they could never be stripped of their God-given rights. For the past several generations, however, the Department of Re-Education in Washington, D.C. has forced the once independent schools to teach that life is just the result of millions of years of aberrant chance mutations in a purely mechanical universe, and there is no creator. The nice sterile term for this is evolution. But if there is no creator, then there are no creator-given rights upon which our republic was founded. Without God-given rights, we are left with only government-given rights. And what the government giveth, the government taketh away. If there is no creator, we have neither God-given rights nor God-given responsibilities. There is no right or wrong. And we, like all animals, are reduced to survival of the fittest. And if it feels good, do it. Sodom and Gomorrah's kings promoted the same prosperity-driven, lawless lifestyle. In Shimon Kepha's second letter to the followers of Yahshua of Nazareth, known by many today as Jesus, Kepha writes, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into ashes, making them an ensample to those that live ungodly lives. (laughs) Rudimentary explanation. The word ensample in the Greek language means a visible example, something that can be witnessed in the physical universe, not theological speculation. Just as surely as the Almighty does not rain fire and brimstone down on every generation or city in which there's gross wickedness, He has left a testimony in the earth for these last days. God is the righteous judge, and if you decide to live an ungodly life, your judgment is just as sure as the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The remains of Sodom and Gomorrah are also a testimony to the righteous. Lot remains righteous in the midst of a sick, twisted, and perverse world. God delivered the righteous in the day of His judgment then, and He will deliver the just as He shakes the earth in these last days. Many people have a very negative attitude concerning the judgment of God falling on a nation. Well, it depends on whether you are in the wrong or whether you have been wronged. When one gets his day in court and righteous judgment is handed down from the bench, those who have been wronged celebrate. They have been vindicated and will be compensated. Those who have wronged others are punished. That is righteous judgment. God's judgment on Sodom brought relief to those who were shackled in dungeons until they were abused to death. It ended the rape and murder of other men who had entered into the city expecting to conduct business and then returned to their wives and children, only to be defiled mercilessly before being bludgeoned to death. It ended child pornography and sex slave markets. It ended kidnapping and prostitution rings. It ended the murder of babies conceived in the free sex atmosphere of Sodom's singles bars, church dating clubs, and the private studies of lawless clergy. Perhaps it ended the first syphilis and AIDS epidemics that would have wiped out the world before the age of modern medicine. God is the righteous judge, and if you are living a righteous lifestyle, you long for the day that His righteous judgment is released upon the face of the earth. As it is written in the Psalms, the righteous speak of his judgment all the day long. But as I say, his judgment is not pleasant table conversation in the house of the wicked. As Shimon Kiefa said, Even though we do not see God's hand of judgment overtly revealed against the wicked, do not deceive yourself into thinking that the Almighty is slack concerning his promise of judgment. He is not. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He never judges without fair warning. Consider this fair warning. The day, the millennium of the Lord, is at hand. Just as Kepha prophesied, the remains of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah stand as an ensample, a visible witness in the last days a witness that the Hebrew Scriptures are an accurate historical record of the land and people of which they speak. The ashen remains of those cities are a testimony to those who decide to live an ungodly life. They remind us that the judge, though long-suffering, will render a swift and terrible verdict to those who disobey His commandments and do their own thing. This brimstone is an aromatic reminder that the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov is the righteous judge, and that he will deliver the righteous in the day of judgment. I'm Michael Rood. Join us again next time for A Rude Awakening. And I'll see you when the smoke clears.
0: Redheaded headed stepchild solace radio we go where no talk radio has gone before